Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Are the boys in white and blue, and we are playoff bound here at the AFTN Soccer Show. There's still time. There's still time for the Whitecaps to make a big splash in the postseason. Let's hope they can do it. I'm Michael McCall. I'm Steve Pander. I'm Zachary Adam Eisenheimer. And I'm Navid Mashinchi. And you're listening to another AFTN Soccer Show, broadcasting on CITR Radio 101.9 FM from the unceded Musqueam Territory at the University of beautiful British Columbia. So we've got a lot to, to go over in this show. We're, we're going to bring you a couple of interesting interviews this week. We're going to be chatting to Lindsay Ingham, who's a lawyer down in Sacramento. Her firm specialise in sexual misconduct investigations. So we, with the White Caps scandal still looming large in the background, we had a chat with her basically to find out how these kind of investigations work and some of the ins and outs of that. So we've got that coming up in part two. We're then going to turn our attention to League One BC and we've got a, a chat with Colin Elms and Will Cromack from TSS Rovers as they chat about the new league, what it means to, to soccer development in the province and also their plans for fan ownership. And then we'll also round up all the CPL news this weekend as the top four playoff places are all set and it's been a, a disappointing weekend for a, a number of teams in the league. All of that is still to come, but we're going to start with the exciting afternoon that was MLS Decision Day. And we're not really focusing on the Easters. We haven't really focused on them much for the, the past few months on the show. We'll touch on it a little bit towards the end, but we've got to focus on the wild, wild west. It was a fun afternoon. And it was an afternoon I felt pretty calm on during it. As I think the Whitecaps controlled their destiny well. We'll get into all the different ins and outs of how things played out in the afternoon. And what I'm going to do for it is I'm going to do something which is a big thing that they do in the UK in the final day of the season in the, the Premier League and the Championship as well. We're going to go through the, the whole afternoon minute by minute. And for the basis of that, we're just going to have every game kicking off at the same time. There's a couple of minutes discrepancies in that. So we'll go through minute by minute as to how the afternoon played out. All the highs, the lows, the drama, everything like that. So it was fun putting this together. 
over the course of the afternoon, I've got to say that. So hopefully you, you enjoy how we're going to cover it in this part as well. But before we get into all that, let's just set the scenarios up. I'm sure everyone knew anyway. For the Whitecaps, a win or a draw meant they were in the postseason for the first time since 2017. Could they do it? They've not had a lot of luck at times against Seattle, but I was confident heading into this one. We spoke about it on the midweek show. We all thought they would get the job done. They could even afford getting into the playoffs if they lost, depending on how other results went. So a fun afternoon was in store. That was always guaranteed. So much things could be decided from the top three and their positioning to what was going to happen between positions five and nine, who was going to make the playoffs, who was going to be heartbroken. And I think the fans really got into this as well. 25,117 in attendance at BC Place this afternoon. The biggest crowd for a sporting event in BC since the pandemic began. There was huge lineups outside as I got to the stadium. I think most people got into the stadium in their seating time, so that was a good thing. But we'll start things off before we get into how the afternoon played out, just by looking at the, the lineups for the Seattle-Vancouver matchup. So Vanni Sartini made two changes to the starting lineup for this one. Ranko Veselinovic coming in for Eric Doy in the back. Christian Gutierrez coming in for Bruno Gaspar in the kind of left-wing back role with Javane Brown then moving to, to right-wing back. I, I, I liked those changes, Navid. I thought that was a, it was a, a good couple of strong changes for what Seattle could pose. Yeah, no, uh, I, I thought it was great changes from Vanni Sertini. Um, What's surprising to me is they start Gutierrez started on the right, right, and yeah. Brown on the left. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I noticed that at the beginning. So it was pretty. Manny seems to always play people off on their off wings, especially the wing backs. I think it's just to confuse the opposition because it confuses us. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and Steve Seattle, they'd made four changes. There was no Rui Diaz. There was no Ladero. Freddie Montero was leading the line. I mean, it, it was a, a weaker. Seattle squad, if you can call any lineup that Seattle puts out a weak squad, because I think yeah. to get into Seattle these days, you've got to be a pretty darn good player. And and pre-game, the the, the uh, Schmetzer was asked about the injuries, how concerning are they? And then he, most of them, he said, were very concerning. Um, he said probably the uh, the most concerned was Will Bruin, um, and then um, uh, the Ladero one was a flare-up of a. A previous surgery he had mm. there was a little bit of swelling and Rui Diaz same thing apparently it was a, he had a hamstring issue yeah so all three Rui the, Diaz came out of the game on Monday and you yeah. thought he was maybe just like precautionary Precaution. or just tactically but apparently not no and so the, all uh, basically they're all I think there was one that was minor that they wanted to just be precaution on precautions but the, for the most part uh, they were, they were concerned about those injuries so that's why they they left them out because they were interested and he even said no disrespect to the Whitecaps or the other teams trying to get into the playoffs, but we have to look forward to the playoffs. Yeah. Plus, he, he would really, ideally, I think, probably have wanted first place anyway. So, I mean, yeah. he's not going out there deliberately to put out a weaker team. Yeah. But what did you think of the the attendance today, Steve? Over 25,000. I mean... I was I was a little surprised about it. I didn't expect it. I, I don't know how much Seattle people came up. Or there was quite there. a lot actually yeah. came up. I'd say a fair few dozen. Maybe yeah. maybe over 100. But, but, but I, still, I was surprised. But, still, but even for that, you expect more for to get to a crowd of 25,000. I think people just were... 
um, just wanted to be out there, and especially with it, something being on the line as well. And maybe yeah. the word of mouth got out there that, you know, the Whitecaps and uh, there might be some people out there that want to do a double header where, cause the, the Canucks were going to be playing later on in the evening. So I oh, want to do a double header where they play the Whitecaps and then watch the Canucks later. I mean, it, it was great to, to see the crowd out in those numbers and it, it, it made it feel like olden times. Yeah. If we could yeah. just go back for two years and all, but it, it was a fantastic atmosphere. Lineups outside. It, a lot of folk, Vancouver style, arrived a little bit late, which then meant that there was big queues outside, but it, it kind of moved pretty smoothly. One thing I will say, though, is if you're going to have a vaccine passport system, at least scan folks' vaccines. I just basically quickly showed mine on my phone and was just waved through. They didn't check ID or anything, because oh at that God. point, they didn't care. <laughs> so, we'll I mean, it, it, it could have been a real one or not. It was a real one, but it's like, yeah. So let's get into the game. And as I said, we're going to play this afternoon out as Decision Day played out across the MLS West. And the first action, really of note, happened at BC Place. Six minutes in, ball comes over, Christian Dahomey, handball in the box, clear, no no question about that. Vanny Sartini afterwards described Dahomey as being clumsy. And I think, Navid, that's the best way to describe it. Because jumping with your arms flailing about in this day and age, it's a risky thing to do. And there was no complaints. It was a clear penalty. Yeah, no discussion about that. Just uh, it's sad that they had to start this way. I mean, the atmosphere was great. Uh, you could really feel that the guys were up for it like at the beginning. It really gave them a push. They started off super well, I thought. Yeah, that they started strong and yeah. up for it, and they exactly. were taking the game to Seattle, and then boom, that happened. Exactly. You, could, you could almost hear a pin drop. It went so exactly. quiet. But as you yeah. said, clear penalty. Yeah. I, I even tried to replicate the jump that he tried to do in my room as he was doing it to see if my arm would flail out, and it does a little bit. It's yeah. not like, but but I, so that's what I'm saying. Like if you're jumping, you how can you say what's a normal? You jump with your arms behind you or you're at your side. No, they flail out a little bit. So I don't. I think they have to look at that a little bit better and give a referees a better understanding of what arms are. Maybe get them to jump around and see how their <laughs> arms are. I think both arms were flailing about, though. I mean, that was the thing. Yeah. And then it it took over a minute for everything to settle down. Freddie Montero steps up to take the penalty. Now you almost knew. I I, I should have put money on it because you almost knew Montero was going to get on the score sheet this afternoon, and he did. Max Kripal's probably faced him a number of times in, in training. I think he thought he's going to go to one side. Montero dispatched it to the other. It was a good penalty. But, wow. I, I was curious to see if he would celebrate. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, I, I think surprised. he did. He did. He, what? I, was, he I was actually disappointed in him. Why yeah, would no, you? No, I, I don't expect I mean, any different from him. He, he's, he, he was never tied to the Whitecaps. He's had no, he has really yeah. no loyalty. He I, was a higher... He was a hired gun. Yeah, I'll 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 st- I'll, I'll uh, stand up for like sit in for Zach at this point. He was a hired gun. He should never been a white cap. And so mm-hmm. yeah, you, why would you expect anything different from him? Yeah. To be honest, I didn't mind it at all because <laughs> when I, it's something that it does annoy me a little bit. It's like 
you celebrate a goal and it's like, okay, as long as you don't go overboard with it and just start no. like kissing the badge or the opposition and all that, yeah. I, I genuinely don't really see anything wrong with Did it. Did fans boo him at least? No, <laughs> actually. No, I didn't really hear any boo. I mean, it might have been, but I, I didn't hear any. <laughs> well, what you need to compare it to is how what he did when he scored for Vancouver against Seattle. Yes, and it that was, did it cross was my mind. Yes, that, that, that was, it's fair to it say. It was not the same. Not the same. No, because he was like, no, 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 can't, can't yeah. do anything, can't do anything. <laughs> but that was eight minutes gone, and it's 1-0 Seattle. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, but... This is not your father's Whitecaps. Because it's a team that over the season, they've shown fight. They've got five wins and five draws from the 19 previous games where they've fallen behind in. So they've taken points in more than half of the, the games that they've fallen behind in, which is tremendous, really, especially in MLS. And especially depending on what the Whitecaps have been like before. So, I mean, at, at that point, how concerned were you? I... I was a little bit concerned, but I thought until a second Seattle goal goes in, maybe not yeah. that concerned. Yeah, the thing, the only positive about that goal going in was the fact that it was so early, mm -hmm. so they had time to like claw them back. And like you said, they've had experience dropping goals early, so it, there's a they they know what to do at that point. That goal though, and falling behind, meant that the Whitecaps fell to seventh in the the playoff race and the room for error was very small by that point. So then after that, the Whitecaps forced a couple of scrambles. Fry had a, a good save. But then in the 18th minute, we're heading to Colorado and Jonathan Lewis scored for the Rapids against LAFC, sweeping home a fantastic Acosta cross, easing some pressure then on the Whitecaps. And at that point, it yeah. kept Colorado in second in the West. But... It was an exciting time after that. Made more exciting, two minutes later, 20th minute, the Whitecaps are back on, on level terms. Now, we'll talk a little bit about the goal. So first of all, a great ball in from Christian Gutierrez. Brian on the left White, side. Yeah, uh -huh. in from the left and showing maybe what we've been missing. He was so good earlier on in the year, then he had the injury, he kind of dropped out. The kind of minutes that he's played, he didn't look that sharp. I thought he was outstanding today. And some of his delivery today was absolutely fantastic. And this was one of them. Straight under the head of Brian White. And we've seen White bury a lot of these chances in the last few weeks. So it was a pinpoint cross. This time, though, White went up, won the ball, took a cut to his eye in the process. But I think that shows you the warrior that mm -hmm. White has been for the Whitecaps. Because... He put his body on the line to, to win that header and set gold up. And, I mean, the cross was great. White winning that was great. 100%. I mean, the desire, I mean, like you said, put his body on the line. Then the ball fell to Ryan Gold. A, a player who, when he came here, did not have many headed goals to his name and somehow has become a heading machine for, for the Whitecaps. He rose well. He took it well. It was in off the post. Was that Absolutely his fourth fantastic. header goal? I think it might even be more. It might be fifth or sixth. I'd have to check that yeah. out. But, I mean, this is a guy that was more known for scoring from set pieces, scoring with his feet. And he's just had a new lease of life. I mean, we, we talked a lot in the past about the poor delivery from the Whitecaps. But I think they've kind of shown with the amount of headed goals that they've got this year mm -hmm. just how 
how good their delivery has got now. No, yeah, even, and, yeah, and, and his previous team probably wasn't much of a crossing team, so that's why you don't have that many opportunities to cross in there. Uh, maybe that's why he never got too many goals. Because, as we know, he never played really with the Scottish side, who, where he would have probably got some headers in there. Um, so, but, I mean, so, all, all round, it was a great, great Yeah, great goal. goal. He great definitely goal knows, what to, and, he knows yeah. what to do with the box, for sure. And I loved your tweet about that, uh, Michael. When you put when you tweet right on time, that's what you paid DP to do. I that is exactly it. that's the thing. It's like Spot we've on. had so many DPs over the years right. that haven't come up at the big moments. We had one up. of them sitting on the bench today that doesn't come on until a minute into stoppage time. Mm-hmm. But you bring these guys here to be difference makers. Right. We've gone on ad nauseum for years now in the show about all these teams have difference makers. The White Caps have one now. And they've got a really cheap one as well in Brian White, which is fantastic. <laughs> but in terms of designated player, they've got a proper DP now. A guy that really makes a difference. Probably the... I would, oh, I was, that's a bit unfair. I was going to say probably the first guy since Pedro Morales. But Kai Kamara made a difference. Freddy Montero did make a difference as well when he was banging the goals. And So, I mean, those yeah, guys but, have but, done but, it. But, but to be honest, those guys were DPs. Just by position or by yeah, this is a true, this, a true DP. And and the funny thing is, is uh, overall, I know I know no spoilers for what we're doing here, uh, going up to leading up, but second header to actually uh, put the Whitecaps in the playoffs. Well, that's yeah. I mean, that's it. He's he's the guy that's clinched them the the spot, which yeah. he plays down as he he said after the game because it's obviously a team effort over the course of the season. But to celebrate, I've got my bottle of Iron Brew which I've been slugging away. 24 grams in sugar. I'm sure I'll sleep well tonight. Or not. But it's just going to keep me, keep the excitement levels going. So that was the 20th minute. It was one all. The Caps were now sixth. And they were heading for a game against Sporting Kansas City. Is that how it was going to finish? Again, spoiler, we know it was. But let's, let's play out the rest of the afternoon. So in the 22nd minute, we're now heading down to LA. LA Galaxy hosting Minnesota and Adrian, who now? Who now? S- who now? <laughs> Scored for Minnesota. Initially ruled out for offside. It was given on video review. Horrible Galaxy defending in this one. And that's not the first time we'll mention that no, as no, we go through not. the course of the afternoon. And, I mean, it was great. It gave Vancouver some more breathing space. 1-0 Minnesota. It didn't affect the Caps' position. They're still in sixth place. 26th minute, Max Cropot. Big save off Freddie Montero. It was, it was a great save from Cropot that kept the scores level. Yeah. But it, it shows yeah. again just how important Max Cropot. I mean, we, we talk so much about gold and White's goals and all that kind of stuff. Cropot, rightly player of the season. And without him... The Whitecaps would not be a playoff team. It's a, as simple as that, which made it a little bit worrying when I thought he was going to get sent off towards the end of the game. But we'll, we'll come to that. So in the 26th minute, while Maxime Cropot is making the save at BC Place, in Colorado, Arango is crashing one off the post for LAFC. I don't know how much that would have affected the outcome of the game. I, I don't think much. Because six minutes after that, Jonathan Lewis hit the post for the Rapids as they really turned up the pressure. And then from a, a corner, Colin Warner made it 2-0 to Colorado. His first goal since March 2017. What a time to get it. 
putting the Rapids in dreamland, still sitting top of the Western Conference standings. And at that point, LAFC looked toast. It looked like they were done. And you're thinking, well, the Whitecaps only need two other teams to falter if they don't get the job done. And that's one of them. It now looks a little bit out of the picture in, in LAFC. 34th minute. Max Cripple, that was when he made the save from Ronald Oh, right, Dan. okay. Also in the 34th minute, down in Carson, California, Robin Lode makes it 2-0 to Minnesota. The Galaxy at that point also looked toast, but in terms of not probably catching the, the Whitecaps, because I thought, do they, do they have what it takes to, to have three goals in them? Well, they did score the next three goals in that match, but they weren't all for them, so that, that did derail <laughs> them a little bit. I, at that point, when it's LAFC's 2-0 down, the Galaxy's 2-0 down, I, I, I know we've been stung before, and in Vancouver sports, nothing is guaranteed. I thought the spot was secured by that point. I was pretty confident and relaxed from that point onwards that the Whitecaps were a playoff team. Was I on my own there? No, I was there with you. I thought, well, yeah, go ahead, Steve. I was very, yeah, I was very confident about LAFC Colorado, but I still wasn't sure about, I I, I honestly didn't think, wasn't sure about Minnesota and sporting, I mean, yeah, sporting Kansas City not taking the lead in the first half, that kind of concerned me too. I mean, there wasn't really much happening in the Whitecaps game after that, and halftime came without any panic. So it's it's halftime at BC Place, the action is still underway, though, down in Carson. And then Sebastian Leger pulls one back for the Galaxy. He runs in to finish at the back post, makes it 2-1 Minnesota at half time. I was a little bit more concerned because I thought, oh, we've seen the Galaxy once they get a little bit of wind in their sails with the home crowd on them. We've seen Minnesota give up some leads this season. Not great away from home. So... I still thought it was job done. I, I was still feeling not worried at all. RSL and LAFC were the teams in trouble at, at half time. But a single goal for RSL would change everything. They were a little bit under the cosh though in the first half at, in, in that game in Kansas City. They were piling forward, but they just weren't getting the breakthrough. Saloy missed a... a couple of big chances for them in the first half, at the start of the second as it got underway. Achoa, though, was coming up big for, for RSL in this one as well. Yeah, I, I didn't get to see the RSL Kansas City game, but the reason why it was a little bit not as because uh, uh, of the, the way you said the stats. The stats were so heavily in favour of Kansas City, but there was no Johnny Russell on the pitch, so that concerned me as well. Yeah, he's kind of nursing a, a little knock, which... They obviously want to make sure that he's good for the, the playoffs. I mean, the the first half at, at BC plays, the Caps were outshot and they only had one shot on target, but it went yeah. in. So who cares? That's all that matters. 100%. You're one for one. I take that. So all the second half action got underway. 51 minutes on the clock. Chicharito ties it up in Carson. It's 2 all Galaxy, Minnesota. Nice finish. It made things a bit more concerning for the Caps because if they were to fall behind at this stage, they could have been in trouble. And a point right now, though, is absolutely fine for them. So again, everything's ticking along fine and dandy. 52 minutes at BC Place. Fantastic ball in from Guti to, to White. 
how he missed that, I don't know when he's been so clinical this right. season. But, oh. It, it had to do, I think, in part, like, he was recovering from his gash yeah. from the goal, right? Yeah. That either put him off, you think, or... Well, he had, he had to change off, his right. top again immediately after it, so yeah. he's obviously he, started cut it open opened again. Up the cut. Yeah. Yeah. I, I personally don't think it would have put him off because he didn't... The way he struck the ball with his head, it didn't think he, I don't feel like he was thinking about the cut. So I think he honestly just missed in that case. From my past experience, I don't know, just from a player's because sometimes in these situations, he probably looked at somewhere odd and then he completely... I don't know, maybe it was a lightning. Like maybe just took his eye off it. Or... Yeah, something. I, I have, something must have happened. Because something he happened. He, yeah, he didn't direct it towards the net. He direct he hit the ground basically. He bounced it off the ground, which is not normal either. Because he was in close. Yeah, I mean, he—that's the kind of one with the form that he's been in. You yeah. thought, oh, it's in the back of the net, but again, the delivery from Gutierrez—it was pinpoint. It was magnificent. Yeah, and. and, and it, and, and the thing about, sorry, the thing about White, too, we've said it, like, like yes, he scored a lot of goals, and we'll give him credit for that, but we've said it before, so we have to stick by it. He's not the most athletic striker out there. So while he's doing on a great run right now, he's not known for making those finishes all the time. So you got to give him a little bit of leeway there. That's, that, that's fair. A second goal there, though, and it's like, I think we could have been done. sitting with our yeah. feet up. That, that would have felt done and dusted and uh, wouldn't have had concern at all. But it didn't go in. So 53 minutes on the clock. Lewis grabs his second of the night in Colorado, making it 3-0 for the Rapids. Great footwork by Rubio for this goal. If you get a chance to see this, Rubio was outstanding. It's like the ball was glued to his foot. Two minutes later... Arango pulls one back, though, for LAFC. Colorado were temporarily a, a man down at this point because they were getting treatment off the pitch, but it was like, was this going to be the start of a dramatic comeback for Bob Bradley's men? Again, spoiler, no. And it could have been the thing that sparked it, but Colorado looked so good this afternoon. Just from watching the highlights, they were in complete control of this. And all of this as this was playing out, it still was not affecting the Whitecaps. They were still in sixth. They were still heading to KC. 62 minutes on the clock. And Hiroa own goal makes it 3-2 for Minnesota down at LA Galaxy, giving the Whitecaps some breathing space again. Now, this was a horrible goal for the Galaxy in a number of ways. The, the defending to set up the cross into the box and the own goal, holy cow, I don't know what he was trying to do, but I'm not that sure was either. a bad own goal. Essentially, if, if he was a striker, that would have been a nice finish. Oh, yeah. That would have been a, a quality finish from a striker. But I don't know if, if he was trying to splice it over, if he was just trying to kick it over his head. But even the build-up to that, it, it showed you just how poor the Galaxy are still defensively. Both LA sides, how poor they are defensively. And I don't know how many seasons that we've said that about them now. And yeah, 3-2 to Minnesota. They were in dreamland at this point. So were the Whitecaps. 63 minutes on the clock. Cole Bassett makes it 4-1 for Colorado from the edge of the box. Lovely strike. Were they going to win the West in some style? That's what everyone was wondering. Seattle though, a goal from them at BC Place and they would have been back top again. And they were the only team, well... I was going to say the only team making the running, but they were making most of the running in the match at this point. The Whitecaps weren't threatening too much, but 
they weren't under a lot of danger either. I, I think Seattle still wanted the, the first round by. One goal would have done it for them. But at this point, one goal in a few of the games could have had some dramatic implications on things. 68 minutes on the clock. Carlos Vela curls an effort off the crossbar for LAFC. Now, Vela started on the bench, but I don't know if they felt he's got an hour in him or whatever, but he came around the 31st minute. I don't know if that was them just chasing the game at that point or if it was always the plan. But if that had gone in, it could again made things a little bit interesting. It would still have been a two-goal game and LAFC would still have needed three. Brian Rodriguez, though, did pull one back for LAFC in the 71st minute off a, a beta deflection. Stephen Beta sure, trying to block the shot, just hit off the inside of his thigh, went in, so it was 4-2. Voldemort's men, though, were needing a miracle. Or some dark magic, perhaps. Four minutes after that, though, Colorado hit the post again, this time from Lucas Estevez. Also in the 75th minute, Chicharito grabs his second of the afternoon to make it 3-all in LA for the Galaxy against the Loons, finishing at the second attempt. Nice swivel and volley there. And that made it really interesting because if LA Galaxy could have gone ahead in this one and the Whitecaps conceded a goal and RSL took the lead, a lot of ifs there, but a three-goal swing and the Whitecaps were out of the playoffs. So... Things were getting a little bit nervy. Even if it finished 3-3, if there was two goals in the other games, things could have been a little bit nervy there. 79 minutes on the clock. Dominic Baggi off a lovely Stephen Betashire cross. It's 5-2 for Colorado. 83 minutes. Ranko brilliantly meets a pinpoint gold corner, but Freddie Montero heads it off the line, which Vanni Sartini joked after the game that he didn't see that defensive effort from Montero in his two years that he was in Vancouver, which yeah. I liked that little dig. But then he said, I, I kid, I kid. He wasn't kidding. No, he wasn't kidding, because I think the most effort Montero ever did was pushing a teammate into yeah. the opposite. G- giving penalties away was Montero's right. most defensive and, and, effort yeah. for the Whitecaps. <laughs> no, and essentially setting up a teammate to give away the penalty as well. Yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah. Don't forget Rudy Camacho's punch to his leg. Yes, we'll, we'll be talking about Rudy Camacho as well a little bit later on. Of course, on. Yes. St- Star of the show he is sometimes. 87 minutes on the clock. Time is running out for some of these teams, but the Whitecaps still sitting comfortably. Derek Williams handles a Frajapan shot in the box, and it's a penalty to Minnesota in LA. Frajapani steps up, hits the spot kick off the left post. It's still tied at 3 all. The Galaxy tweeted out, and this annoyed me, for no real reason, it just annoys me, stuff like this. It was like, denied! It wasn't denied. The keeper had nothing to do with it. He crashed it off the post. It's like I was watching the UBC Canada West games earlier, and the commentator kept saying, oh, it's a penalty to UBC. And I looked up, and it's a free kick. He obviously calls hockey. And he's he's judging a foul as a penalty. Oh, and boy. I hadn't been watching the screen. And twice <laughs> I thought, oh, UBC's got a penalty. But anyway, that's just a slight bugbear of mine. So at this stage, we're getting into stoppage time. Things seemed pretty clear cut, barring some late drama. And boy, did we get some late drama. 94th minute at BC Place. The Sounders get a last gasp free kick. 
The ball's floated into the box. There's a scramble in the box. Freddie Montero pokes his foot out. Max manages to, to co- collect the ball. It's kind of sh- shielded a little bit by Flo, allowing Max to pounce at Montero's feet, get the ball. Everything looks great. But then a stramash, as we call it in Scotland, broke out. And at the time, I was like, what on earth triggered this? Because Max is pointing in at Ariaga on the ground and and then Nuhu's not happy with stuff and there's lots of pushing and shoving. Now, I asked Max about it after the match and he said he's basically, he's fed up with, with this kind of stuff happening, which is why he's been playing with more of an edge of late, which I think we can actually put back to the Mexico game at the Gold Cup. Right, Since right. then, when he lost it then, he's been playing quite aggressive and I like it. I love to see it. You've got to rein it in a little bit. I was really worried he was going to get a red card flashed or something and then he was going to be out, out of the playoffs. But then he, he explained why he lost it so much and I came home and I watched it and I was like, the dirty little bastard. So Ariaga's on the ground and he just kicks out and he catches Youngworth in his Achilles at the back. There was no need to flick that foot out. Yeah, I think he thought he was faking it or trying to get a penalty or something like that. That's what I thought. That's what I'd initially thought as well. Because he was pulling him up by the thing. And going, yeah, and then knew who he wasn't happy and then there's yeah. lots of pushing and so, shoving. And it, it was a dramatic ending. And but, uh, For sure. Let me tell you this, guys. What bothered me most for that scene was Cavallini even following that guy in the 94th minute. That yes. was ridiculous. I looked at Youngworth. He was flipping. He was yeah. getting so mad. He was, he was so mad. I know he's a liability with his tackling. Why are you uh, flying when, in the ninety fourth minute? Give them the last chance to freak. It was yeah. yeah. When when I got when I when he got subbed on, I messaged in our chat that he, I was worried that the MLS uh, Whitecaps were going to lose the Fair Play Award. They <laughs> ended up doing the foul. I'm amazed no one actually picked a booking up during all the pushing and shoving. Uh, yeah, it felt fair. like uh, quite a dodgy thing to to risk being so aggressive about yeah I, I my big concern when it was happening because max wasn't backing down i knew who was like really was going all... after him and i was like oh, if they get into it here but i felt like could be I, 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 I felt like max was more in control than knew who knew who was oh totally yeah he'd lost it. it i thought i felt like he swung at somebody at one point when he was in like away from max and on the side by the post i felt like he swung at somebody there so i don't know what Maybe something comes up afterwards, but he was definitely more out of control than Maxwell. It's, it's nice to see that kind of niggle between the two teams. You want that in a derby game, and you yeah. you want them to to think these guys really are guys that that are challengers to us and not and, just and, easy pushovers. And then based on what happened later on, that save was huge. It was massive. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I think they would have been eliminated if they yep, didn't make that. They save. would if Montero had poked that ball home. Freddie Montero would have eliminated the White Cats from the playoffs. No way. With how yeah, things then work. Because with, with RSL, RSL, uh, they would have had uh, the same points but more wins. Yep. So they would have bumped And the Galaxy would have as well. Yeah. Wow. So oh, that's true. That, yeah, that's right. That basically, if that had gone in and RSL had still scored their winner, which we're about to come to, the White Caps would have been eighth. Wow. And it would have been Freddie that would have put them out and it would just have been. <laughs> the scenes, the joyous scenes at BC Place, which were wonderful at the final whistle. I hate to, to imagine what the the mood would have been like. The post game scrums were all great, upbeat. It was a lot of fun. Oh, 
you would not have wanted to jump on them if, if things had gone differently. But the final whistle finally came at BC Place, and the Whitecaps were in the postseason for the first time since 2017. And for a team last in the standings in August, bottom of the West, they played their first four months of the season away from home, out of the country. This is an incredible turnaround, and everyone needs credit for this. Mark DeSantis and Philip DeSantis, all the players, Vanny with what he's done since he's come in with his team, every single person, every single player involved with the Whitecaps for the fight that they've shown and this comeback, Naveed, they deserve this. And it's just incredible, really, what they've done. No, 100%. And as you mentioned, there goes a lot of credit to MDS and PDS, um, really. Uh they played a big part in this as well. But obviously, I mean, when Vanny came in, I mean, who would have yeah. thought that he would turn around like this? And yeah, credit to the whole staff, players, everyone in the organization. I think really the city and the fans, we all deserve it. And you put in your report, Steve, that that's 20 of their 22 games that they took points out of. Last 22 games. Last 22, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, that that's I, I did not realize that stat when I when I was looking to see like uh, how many points they got like the run basically uh, leading up to the playoffs and when I saw that I was very surprised um, and if you look at it as well um, we're talking about giving credit to MDS I believe uh, if I'm not mistaken he start basically started it off with yep. uh, three wins and mm. four uh, five draws out of those uh, uh, twenty games and Vanny was quick to to pay credit to, to MDS as well in his post-game stuff, which was nice to see. Actually, talking of Vanny, let's just play a little bit of audio from him just now. Just post-game, cock-a-hoop as you can imagine. Here's the gaffer. Yeah, I want to say just one thing, and then uh, you can ask every question as usual to, to me and everything. But I say every time that the team is the leader, the group is the leader, not only the player. The reason why we made the playoff is because we have a fantastic staff. So we, I want to say publicly, thank to Youssef, Ricardo, Drew, Luke, Mike, and JP that is not here because he's already drunk, drinking some uh, whatever, but it's okay. Without a good staff, you don't do anything. So everything that I do well, when you guys see hey, the coach, the coach is not the coach, he's the group. Okay, always. So I want to thank you guys and I want to give you a big round of applause. Ask whatever you want, I'm going to invent today. Go. Hey, Vanny, congratulations on a, a fantastic achievement, really reaching the playoffs. I was going to ask how you were feeling right now, but I think that's obvious from what we just saw. But when you look back at your time in charge and how far this club has come, as Brandon says, from last place into the playoffs now, just what's your overriding feelings right now? Well, I think we did a miracle, pure and simple. And uh, uh, we've been fantastic. Uh, and I'm not talking all, only the, my time in charge. I'm talking even before. If we went to the playoff, it's also credit to Mark Dos Santos and Philip Dos Santos that they were here before because uh, the team was already improving a lot. The team was, was starting winning. And uh, so it's their win too. Not only not only the win that uh, that that we are here that we are here now, so uh, I think we did. Uh, you you have no idea uh, in stay in Salt Lake for a lot of months, we're uh, away from home, and uh, 
it's uh, it's been fantastic. We in the last uh, 13 games, 14 games when I've been in charge, we made 26 points. And uh, today, uh, if you if you look at the game today, uh, in the last uh, five years of MLS, we look Seattle. They look the other team. We look the strong team. Uh, they're happy to get away from the BC place with the points because n- not so many teams can can come here and make points because we are a very good team, but also be only because we we put uh, everything and uh, it's a testament to the work of everyone from the medical staff to to uh, the, the um, performance staff. We 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 fully deserve it. And this afternoon, you didn't have to rely on anyone else. You got done what you needed to get done. You got that point. You got in on your own merit. After going a goal behind, came back quickly, obviously. I mean, how nervous were you this afternoon? Or did you have full faith and full confidence that this was always in the bag? I wasn't. After five minutes, we pushed them in their... their, uh, in their defensive third, we considered a goal because uh, Daho was a little bit clumsy. Uh, and uh, but uh, then we were always on the front foot, and it's a theme. Uh, we've been uh, we've been better than them. We've been better than them, and we. I I wasn't nervous at all because I I knew that we were going to we were going to to score, and I'm I'm actually a little bit. Uh, well, not pissed, but you know, I think we had the chance to score the second goal, two big chance, enormous chance with Brian and, and uh, Ranko, and uh, we deserve to win actually. Thanks, congratulations uh, again, Vanny. Uh, I wish I stuck some money on the team when you were 200 to one, but good luck in the playoffs. Uh, I know, I know, but you know, gambling is actually a problem, it's better not to gamble. Okay. Good luck, Vanny. The gaffer, Vanny Sartini, he said he was pissed. And I actually thought he meant the Scottish version of pissed, which was drunk. Drunk. But he just meant pissed off. But he did say he was going to go and get drunk later. So yeah. I'm pretty sure as we record this on Sunday night, most of the players are going to be absolutely legless just now. He said they wouldn't be in a fit state if the next game was tomorrow. So I'm sure they'll get a couple of days off now. So the Whitecaps were in the playoffs. We thought we knew the other six teams that were going to be in there as well. But no, the drama wasn't over quite yet. The 95th minute in Kansas City. Now, the home side had been the far better team. Chances and shots were fairly level, but the best of them had fallen to KC. And Salloway, again, had missed a, a few good opportunities. They squandered chance after chance after chance. RSL... Really came to life, though, in stoppage time, as you'd expect, because they're fighting for their playoff lives by that point. And five minutes of stoppage time was very entertaining. And both teams, it went end to end. Both teams had their chances. But then, five minutes into stoppage time, absolute scenes. As the cry latch was unleashed, he poked the ball home. It was 1-0 to RSL. It looked like it could have been borderline offside initially, but when you see the replay, he timed his run to perfection. It was, I think it was Ruiz had tried an overhead kick, and it wasn't really going in, but Krylach had that anticipation that a good striker does to run in, put it home, 
and RSL absolutely jubilant. I I was pleased for them. I got a little bit of a soft spot for for RSL and Colorado as well, to be honest. Um, I don't really know why, but uh, it was fantastic. They went 1-0 up. They saw the game out at 1-0, and it moved them into the seventh and final playoff spot, edging out the LA Galaxy. But the Galaxy game was still going on, so they had to go for it. Seven minutes of stoppage time added on in the Galaxy game. It felt like it was MLS saying, we've got to get an LA team in the playoffs. Just keep (laughs) adding time on until Chicharito scores. But they couldn't do it. And the Galaxy are out of the playoffs. Now, this is one of the biggest fall down the standings that I can remember. FC Dallas, I think, one year had a massive fall down the standings as well. But the Galaxy, a few months ago, we were talking about, or I was talking about, I don't know if you guys agreed with me or not. The top four in the West, I said, oh, they're they're fine. There's really just maybe two or three playoff spots up for grabs now. And the Galaxy was one of those four. Massive fall down. And it stems from this. I had, like You talked about the Whitecaps' amazing start, Steve. I worked this out tonight. Galaxy had three draws from the last four matches, so they only took three points. But even more of a killer... In their last 15 games, the Galaxy only took 13 points. Two wins, seven draws from 15 games. Yeah. Uh, Took them to fourth, and they had a chance at one point to be top of the West, remember? All the way down to eighth and missing out. Michael, if I'm not not mistaken, I think they were actually in third at one point. Like they were like oh, they right were. with yeah. with Colorado. I think Colorado eventually surpassed them. Yeah, this they were third, and but if they'd they won a game, away. which I think might have been against the Whitecaps, actually, they would have gone top. Yeah, they were. They lost. Uh, I think in Salt Lake or something like that. Like it was the last game against uh, the Galaxy. I mean, not the Galaxy. The um, the, the sorry, the Whitecaps' last game in Salt Lake, and they lost two one on July seventeenth, and that's essentially where the uh, turnaround happened. Incredible. It's like a tale of two Vannies. The good Vanny, Sartini, getting the white caps on a run into the playoffs. Greg Vanny, the bad Vanny, taking his team down the standings. Do you think Greg Vanny's in any danger, or is it too early after one season to pull the trigger no, there? It's too early. One season. They give him definitely yeah. another shot. Do you remember, of course, he went to TFC and didn't make the playoffs in his first season and then did turn mm-hmm. them around? Yeah, and I think he's safe. Oh, yeah. Sorry, what, Zach? He's safe. There's no way Greg yeah. is going anywhere after this one year. But stunning, stunning stuff there. Is this the first time both LA teams are meant to make the playoffs? I don't think so. Oh, no, actually, well, because LAFC have made the playoffs, so this will be the first both. time. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the final scores, Vancouver won, Seattle won. So Seattle finished sixth on 49 points. Seattle second on 60 points. Vancouver made the playoffs with the lowest number of wins in the West, tied with Nashville in the East with just 12 wins. Vancouver's 13 draws is the highest in the West and the second highest in all of MLS, five though behind Nashville, who had a stunning 18 draws, so they drew more than half their matches. Yeah, but third lowest uh, number of losses too. Yeah, Vancouver, losses. Vancouver only lost nine games all that, year. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. And they're single-digit losses. Third best record in the West behind Colorado, who had seven, and Seattle, who had eight. 
and the sixth best in all of MLS. Yeah. Fantastic stuff. It was Colorado 5, LAFC 2 in the end. That's how Colorado win the West. 61 points, get a home by, well, get a first round by and hosting a, a semi-final. LAFC missed the playoffs by three points. They finished ninth in the end on 45 points. LA Galaxy 3, Minnesota 3 sees both LA teams miss the playoffs with the Galaxy now finishing eighth on 48 points. They were level on RSL, but they had one win less. RSL had 14 wins to the Galaxy's 13. So I think I think I, I, I can tell you right now after watching all the highlights that the, probably the person that's most happy that the Galaxy did not come back and win is the person who was doing play-by-play for the RSL Kansas City game because they proclaimed RSL in the playoffs as the final was a blue. And they were still three they were still three to four minutes to go. Yeah, that's dangerous. Because also had... and interestingly, the LA Galaxy game had kicked off late in the second half. So yeah. they apart from the massive time added on, they had a, a good kind of ten minutes potentially after all the other games had finished to know what they needed to get done, but they still couldn't do it. That's yeah, just... I remember, I... I'm going. I'm hearing that. I go. They were different. They were not. They had not clinched the playoff at that point, and so it was. It was odd to see that. Yeah, they they had. We're not paying attention at all because we we were sitting in the press box and uh, Alex had the RSL game on. I said, "Oh, quick, flick over to the Galaxy game," but it wasn't on the zone. It's the only game that wasn't on on the zone oh, or really? TSN, which was quite irritating. RSL, of course, beat KC one 0 That sees KC having to settle for third in the West on fifty eight points. RSL had kind of faltered down the stretch, but they got the job done when it mattered. They clinched seventh, pipping the Galaxy on wins with 48 points. Whew! What an afternoon. That that was exciting. The best Just, part, another good thing about that I found that like uh, uh, Mark Anthony Kay's uh, Colorado eliminated the LAFC team. That, yes. that was nice to see. I, I'm ple- that, like, that, was a be- that was a beautiful thing. As much as I love Johnny Russell, I'm pleased that Colorado won out of those three teams. It's just nice when it's a, a, a team that you feel is a smallish team. They, and and they, they don't spend a lot of money. I don't think they have a true DP, do they? Or Well, they broke the bank, I guess, on Mark Anthony Kay. That was their big splash. But but he's not considered... No, he's player. not. But they, they did splash some, some allocated yeah. funds. But They're more of a, de- a team that's deep all along. But the thing is about them, too, is the first place for them is probably the most important because they can take advantage of the altitude. Out of all the other teams, yeah. nobody really has like. There's nothing special about supporting Kansas City except obviously the home crowd in Seattle. Uh, Colorado has that advantage, that uh, atmospheric advantage. KC as well are a, a tough proposition at home because that stadium is they're so but, close to the pitch. Uh-huh. But they didn't do against anything against RSL. Beat them today. So how can you say that right at this point? The, the, the other results from the West, just to finish event off, Portland easily beat Austin 3-0. That meant Portland finished fourth on 55 points. Austin avoided the wooden spoon. They finished on tw- in 12th on 31 points, one ahead of last-placed Houston, who had a bye this week, and also got rid of their manager, Tab Ramos, during the week. He was the eighth coaching casualty in the league this season and the fourth from the Western Conference. I, I don't know if that's Pat Onstad making his mark early as GM, but uh, there's been a big turnover of coaches this year in the league. Yeah, and, but he's still nominated for Coach of the Year, which is good for him. <laughs> what? 
Really? Every coach was. Uh, every coach, every coach was nominated, basically, unless you're fired before. But he, he came to Houston, his stock was quite high, and he just didn't get the job done. And if Houston's one of those teams, the last couple of seasons, they've had some really talented players, but they just can't do it. Um, San Jose and Dallas drew one all. Wando's last match, he retired and he left with a goal in the 34th minute to put the Quakes mm. ahead. Uh, O'Brien levelled with three minutes before half-time for Dallas. San Jose finished 10th and 41 points. They missed the playoffs by seven points. Dallas, they finished well adrift. 11th on 33 points. The three Texan teams, the bottom three teams. Everything's bigger in Texas, they say, including MLS playoff failure, it would appear. <laughs> so... Lining the playoff matchups up in the East and the West after all that drama. The first round in the West, SKC versus the Whitecaps. Winners of that will play the winners of Seattle and RSL. Portland hosts Minnesota, with the winner travelling to Colorado. In the East, Montreal missed the playoffs by two points, going down to a disappointing 2-0 loss at home to Orlando today. Our friend Rudy Camacho, as we mentioned, he got sent off. Can't wait to hear the ballers round people's taking all this when it comes out. So, the Eastern playoffs, it's fourth-seeded NYC hosting fifth-seeds Atlanta. The winners of that are going to travel to support Shield winners and the newly rebranded New England Revolution. What did you think of their new crest and rebrand? Did you guys see it? I actually didn't see it. No, I missed it. it's another letter that everyone seems to be going with letters today but one thing I did like is they're proudly saying because they're New England Revolution they're proudly saying that they're not just another football club so they don't have FC in their name so I quite like that I I think didn't they have like a little bit of a um, uh, what do you want to say like a kind of a baseball kind of feel to it, if I'm not mistaken. That's what a lot of them are going with. Like Houston Dynamo's yeah. rebrand's very baseball-y feeling as well. Yeah, that's what I. That the first thing when I saw it, I, I felt like it was almost like a baseball badge. I don't mind it too much, but no, yeah. it's that's all right. It's not totally baseball, but it just has a big feel to it. Number three seats in the East, Nashville, who are soon not going to be in the East. They host sixth placed Orlando, with the winners facing the winners of second placed Philly and seventh placed Red Bulls. The ties are going to get played over November 20th, 21st, and 23rd. At the time of recording this, we don't know what's on what days. I do know the Seahawks are at home on the 21st, so Seattle definitely won't be playing that yeah, day. Yeah, they'll be playing there the 23rd, right? There's two games on the 23rd. So. Yeah, I'd imagine they will be. So I'd, the White Cats are probably going to be 20th or, or 21st, but. So it's just exciting. a quick, quick question about the playoffs. There's no reseeding at all. It's no. It's just, there's just uh, I thought there might. I thought. I thought there was going to be like if if the White Caps knocked out Colorado, that they they would be hosting because that's how the bracket yeah. is. Because to me, that's how a bracket works. No, but that, I had a look in Wikipedia, and in each round, it's the highest seed. No, that, I'm I'm, I'm just I'm just talking about rear. Uh, is there a reorganization of the seeding? Like, do they if. If the the this is the worst team that advances from the first round play the top team, or do they actually? Oh no no the the bracket is the bracket still set, but and each semi final it's going to be the highest seeded team. So my guess my guess is actually if Seattle's definitely playing, I think Kansas City and Vancouver will be playing that same day, so that they have the same amount of break between games. Hey, 
that's em- that's too sensible for MLS. I imagine I, they're going to have an east and a west thing every day. Oh, you think yeah, so? ma- well, maybe I'm wrong. Kansas City, Kansas City is Midwest, so it's a two hours mm. ahead. So they could still do that. Final bit of MLS chat just for this part. Just quickly go over this because the 2022 season or how it's going to look was announced by MLS this week. And on the whole, I like it. Charlotte's coming into the league. They're going to be going into the Eastern Conference, which means conference realignment. And Nashville's going to move over to the West with 14 teams in the East, 14 in the West. Now, with Nashville being a Western Conference side, they're also going to be the, the Western team that's furthest East. And from a Vancouver point of view, I had a look at this. There doesn't seem to be any direct flights from Vancouver to Nashville that I could see. It's 4,065 kilometres away, 25, 25 miles. So another huge road trip for the Whitecaps coming up. And this could be a temporary uh, Nashville coming over temporarily because they, if there's two uh, more Western teams come next. Well, St. Louis is coming in, so you'd imagine they're going to go into the east. No, they're going to the west. They're right beside Kansas City. You think? That's a rivalry. Mm-hmm. Missouri and, 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 and Kansas oh, City. Oh, maybe then, yeah. So if they're, they're cross good. Sacramento will come. But I don't. Yeah, and yeah. then if you have Sacramento, it's be Nashville, Las Vegas. <laughs> the, the, well, whatever the case, even if it's Las Vegas, then you have Nashville sending going back to the east. So they're, they're a temporary west. Las west Vegas west. is close enough to Sacramento for you, Navid. Oh, I would <laughs> love a Vegas trip just to watch them. Yeah, I, I think you prefer <laughs> Vegas over. <laughs> so to align with the international calendar and the first ever Winter World Cup in Qatar. The season's going to start earlier than ever before, February 26th. Regular season will wrap up on October 9th. The MLS Cup will be on November the 5th. And the World Cup then starts on November 21st. Crazy to to think of that. They could easily, they could end the season even earlier than that. 34 game season still, 13 home, 13 home and 13 away against the Western teams with eight games against teams in the east so probably for Vancouver they'll get games against Toronto and Montreal as, as two of those eight there's only going to be a maximum of five midweek matches they'll take place in May to August with May June and July one game and two games in August there'll be no games in international windows in March June and September unless clubs specifically ask to play then but even with that in September, they can't. I, I'm quite happy with that. It's going to be a very compacted, but I think an exciting season. Overall, I'm, I think it's it's pretty well done. A- any thoughts from you guys on that? Um, I, I, I'm kind of surprised that it, well, with them starting in February, it's still going to take them to like November to finish the season. I thought they would have it done a lot Because they don't really want the midweek games, though. Yeah, I know, but when they have to do it, they have to do it. Like, I, I'd rather have the players have more time off during the winter in order to get that in there and all stuff. Uh, but I guess if you think of it, most of there's only going to be two teams left by like that November 11th date and uh, before they have to do the cutoff or fourth or whatever it was. So, so they're going to start it, the preseason earlier too then, huh? The caps. Yeah. I yeah, guess the preseason will start maybe mid January. It's going to be very little time off for these guys. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's for next year. We've still got this year to play out. The, the playoffs is to come. It's very exciting. But that is it for our Whitecaps MLS playoff chat. But it's not the end 
of our Whitecaps chat in this episode. We'll be back with some more of that after this. Hi, I'm Vanni Sartini and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Up in the yard, there were doctors all around me Bleeding on the brain in the street is where she found me They done told me others, it's just like me won't walk out of here Used to question if my life had purpose and now it's clear Y'all just can't get rid of me I'm fulfilling my divine prophecy Yes, I'm leaving the kitchen, moving on to something better now All the recipes are in my head, I don't write nothing down It's a life Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, it's our Artist of the Month for November here at AFTN, from Jersey City, New Jersey, Crazy in the Brains, with a song from their 2020 extended 7-inch where the juice drips, and that was, I Don't Deliver Pizza Anymore. I think some of the, the players from the teams that didn't make the playoffs might find themselves delivering pizza in the, the coming months, but we, we won't cast aspersions on them. Let's just say some of these guys maybe weren't MLS quality, but you can't say that about the Whitecaps. But whilst it was all fun and games and joy and positivity from an on-the-field perspective for the Whitecaps, sadly, in amongst all the on-field joy, the... Off-the-field scandal regarding abuse and sexual misconduct allegations is still looming large for, for the Whitecaps. And there's been more developments since our midweek show. So we'll just do a quick recap of that. On Thursday, MLS announced that it had engaged Janice Rubin and Melody Johansadeh of Ruben Tomlinson LLP to conduct an independent review of how the Whitecaps organisation had handled allegations of misconduct brought by members of the Whitecaps women's team in 2011 and 2008. Both of them have conducted countless high-profile investigations into workplaces, including the Canadian Olympic Committee, the CBC, some really high-profile cases. The investigation is going to consider the club's internal processes and overall culture at the time of the allegations, including what steps it took in response to the allegations. The review will also consider the club's current policies and procedures and provide any recommendations on preventative measures to ensure that all players and staff within the Whitecaps organisation work in a safe environment, free of all forms of harassment and fear of retaliation. They've already set an email up for people to get in touch with information. If any whistleblowers want to get in touch, if anyone wants to share stuff that they need to know, 
it's a big development and these are some big hitters that MLS have appointed for this sack and some people were a bit worried it might just be a whitewash or it might just be going through the motions but it it's great to see this and I'm sure there's some worried people at the, the front cups white office right now. Yeah, I, I think MLS proved with the allegations in RSL uh, of you know uh, racial comments being made by the owner show that they're they are willing to take um, strong, decisive action, and I, I think this is a step in that direction. Obviously, the process is just beginning, and time will tell. But it feels like they they mean business, and they want to get to the actual bottom of this, and they want. Uh, they want to do uh, as right as they can in this moment. And so, uh, I mean, in, in one sense, you know, MLS is doing this because they know this hurts them as a league. It hurts their bottom line. It hurts them in one of the communities they've been in for more than a decade. Um, and the cynical side also, you know, says it presents them with an opportunity to, you know, um, to you know, cash in on maybe moving a team, uh, you know, long term to somewhere else where they can make even more, money, even more money from. But regardless, I think they're taking um, what at the moment feels like meaningful steps to uh, better understand what happened and why it happened. And I think the most encouraging thing at the moment right now for people looking on and wanting to know and wanting the bottom of this to really be gotten to is the fact that it is going to be made public. Like we are going to know, people are going to know what happened and uh, why it happened and what led to the actions that were taken and why other actions maybe weren't taken and that, and that sort of thing. And so I think there's a lot of hope and a lot of, uh, a lot of positive coming from that. And um, who knows, who knows what, um, how this will all play out, but it's, I think it's, a, it steps in the right direction. I think as well, Steve, when people saw that it was going to be looking at 2008 as well as 2011, there was some eyebrows raised of like, oh, th this is very good. Yeah, that's what I was, I mean, we mentioned, talked about last week that I was hoping that we, that would be brought up. And it's not really, uh, it's not really to uh, like break something out of that or, or even, it's really to see a pattern. It's to, it's to correlate a pattern of what's going on from 2008 because at 2008 they said they dealt with it and they would they would kind of fix their issues they had and it and then they happened in 2011 again so it's really to show like what what did they actually do anything about it or did it, was that just lip service of what they were telling the people in 2008 about like letting go Barada this is a new situation please don't and the, the email that was sent out please don't discuss this in public or uh, uh, be professional about it or stuff like that. So that's the whole thing of where they trying to cover it up. And that's that's something that they needed to look into 2008, even though it wasn't under MLS. I mean, the, the Whitecaps still haven't said who is on administrative leave. Um, it, it's, kind of, it, it is, it, it's, it's kind of obvious. Yeah, the indication is it's all the executives seems to yeah. be what people are saying now that, that were involved back then. Now, these investigations... There's obviously a lot of questions that, that fans have as to how do they operate? What what do these investigators do? How does the thing pan out? What kind of timescales can we be looking at? What's the remit? 
what what can they look into? What can't they look into? What can they report? What can't they report? It's tough to to know all the ins and outs of it. So there's no point us speculating about it. We thought we would actually get an expert on the show to kind of talk us through what these procedures are when a, a firm goes in to investigate a business or a sports team or or something like that. So got a chance today to chat with Lindsay Ingham. She is a, a partner at McFadden, Ingham and Omart, who are lawyers down in Sacramento in California. Lindsay's husband, Jeff, is a long-time listener from the show and said, you should speak to my wife about this. Jeff's a great guy. Uh, met him at San Francisco away, uh, or San, uh, Sacramento away, uh, I believe, uh, in tw- whatever that year was, the inaugural year of UFC, uh, WFC2. Really, really great guy. And I think he, if memory serves me correct, he's been up here for some games and, and uh, hung out. But yeah, just an awesome, an awesome, awesome dude. Yeah, him and Lindsay are, are big soccer fans. And her firm, they specialise in this kind of investigation. They've gone into a number of businesses and in her previous company as well, they've done this. And it, it, sadly, it, it's something which is growing throughout businesses throughout the world, really. And a lot of people just don't really know how these investigations play out and as I said just how they operate really from start to finish so I got a chance to chat to Lindsay about exactly that and I I think you'll find it very interesting and a, a lot of insightful stuff from her as well here's what she had to tell me So delighted now to say that we are joined by Lindsay Ingham, who is a lawyer based down in Sacramento in California. She's from a company called McFadden, Ingham and Omart, and they're a law firm that specialises in these kind of investigations and allegations, and they go into various businesses and undergo misconduct investigations and hearings. So thank you for joining us on the show today, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. So I guess the there's a lot of questions that fans have when they hear that a, a company or a sports team is going through one of these investigations. Now, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. So whether it's a sports team, whether it's a business, the standard kind of procedures for these investigations, it, it's pretty well set, isn't it? Yeah, and and those standards are essentially promulgated by the Association of Workplace Investigators, and that spans um, Australasia, Canada, and the United States. Excellent. So, I mean, obviously, when we have our chat today, I throw the caveat in now that every investigation is obviously going to be different, and there are some different laws governing probably things in California to, to Canada, but it is pretty much set. So, I mean... From your experience, um, the firm that you run, are you finding that there's a lot more of these investigations happening just now? Well, I think in the past few years, we've certainly seen an increase in claims of workplace harassment and discrimination in the public sector, specifically like politics, film and media, and sports. Um, I think it's safe to say that the Me Too movement encouraged both women and men to come forward with their experiences. Many of those experiences which have uh, traditionally been tacitly accepted as practices that kind of come with the territory. So, for instance, we've all heard about the infamous casting couch. 
Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't really until recently that there, there was any real pushback to that concept. And I think particularly in the sports world, there's been a gradual peeling back of the veil of silence where it concerns persons in positions of authority. And each claimant who comes forward, it's most often near the end or after their career in sports or entertainment, it's over. That's inspiring others to assess their own experiences and in some cases file claims of their own. I mean, the casting couch example that you gave there, that's something when I was a, a kid growing up in the 70s, it, it was something that was it was kind of laughed about almost in a way. Mm-hmm. And you look at things now and it's like, just how cha- how perception of everyone has changed it's 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 excellent but at the same time it's sad as well because it does feel that this is really just the tip of the iceberg for for some of these things absolutely yes now as a firm as a lawyer if you were going into a business and undergoing one of these investigations what are kind of the first steps involved in this an investigator, the first thing I want, I'm going to try and do is figure out what the nature of the complaint, what, what the nature of the allegations are. So typically speaking, that means I'm going to meet with the complainants first. Um, I'm going to have an interview with them. I'm going to ask them, you know, to share their perspective about those allegations. Um, even when there's a, a written complaint, the, that interview, the initial interview, is a really important opportunity to kind of explore further what those allegations entail. You know, typically speaking, when we're sharing something with someone um, or writing a document, we're not, we're not doing that with our investigator uh, attorney hat on. So we're not sharing specifics about the allegations. So the interview is the opportunity for me to meet with the complainant and really ascertain, like, the nature of the allegations. How many times did that happen? Where did that happen? What do you remember about the in- the incident? Uh, were there any witnesses? Did you talk to anybody? Did you memorialize that in any way? Are there any text messages that you sent? Any emails that you may have received or sent about the matter? Any notes, diary entries, anything like that um, that can help kind of pinpoint the time frame, the nature of the allegations, and who may or may not have been aware of whatever was happening um, at that time. Now, in the case of the, the White Caps and the current investigation, it's primarily it was around the 2011 incident, and then it was opening the scope up to look for something that had happened earlier in 2008. So when you're looking at something like that's 10 to 13 years ago, what kind of difficulties arise investigating something like that? Because I would imagine... Some things would not exist still. They could be shredded. People's memories yeah. might be a little bit foggy. Yeah, all of those things are real considerations when you're looking at older complaints like that. And that's why, you know, employers have a duty to investigate as soon as they become aware of a potential violation of the law. Here in the U.S., they're anti-discrimination, anti-harassment, um, anti-retaliation, whistleblower, those types of claims. I think in Canada, you... you call it just kind of harassment, whistleblower, um, and uh, retaliation. But that's why when you learn about those claims, the employer has a duty to uh, investigate it as promptly as possible so that you can preserve that evidence. But when you're faced with a, a situation where the evidence is old, the allegations are old, um, it can be really challenging. And, and so when you are trying to gather evidence, there may not be a lot of evidence. 
Um, and so you're going to be primarily relying on interviews with the complainant, with the witnesses, um, with respondents to gather that information and to make your findings. And when you're evaluating the evidence, you know, one of the things that we look at in terms of evaluating um, participants' credibility is, you know, consistency of, of statements. Well, when you have the impact of time on somebody's memory, that becomes a less reliable indicator of credibility. Um, it's not necessarily reasonable that you would remember every second of your day 10 years ago um, in, in that sort of context. So, so it definitely becomes more challenging. It's not impossible, uh, but it likely makes the investigation significantly more complicated. So when you're hired a, as an investigator for a scenario like this, when, when you go in, you've, you've got an initial remit, you've got an initial complaint or complaints that, that you're looking into. During the scope of your investigation, how much carte blanche do you have to, to then, if, you, if someone says something else about a different incident that you weren't called in for, to maybe investigate that? An example, say from a White Cat's perspective. So just now they're looking at the 2008-2011 incidents. A few years later, there was an incident um, in our academy involving some of the, the young boys in that. But if things come to light about the handling or how the club handled, say, an incident for a matter that you weren't called into, do you have the remit to, to open up and investigate anything that, that comes out, say, from, from just chatting in general? No, we don't. Right. So essentially, the scope is determined by the company. Um, as an investigator, whenever I learn of additional allegations that are outside of the scope, which we use as a roadmap, um, I always let the client know, and that is standard practice. We would let the client know that um, whether it's me or any other investigator, okay, these additional issues arose. How do you want to handle them? Do you want to, to include them in the scope of this particular investigation? I don't, as an investigator, have the independent discretion to add things on to an investigation without permission from the client. Um, and the reason for that is that, you know, part, one of the incredibly important tenets of a good investigation, one that would withstand scrutiny, is that it was conducted promptly, thoroughly, and impartially. You've got to have an end date to that, invest, that investigation. So, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck with, um, we're constrained by the fact that we don't have subpoena power. I can't make people talk to me. I can't um, subpoena documents or other evidence. I just have to assess and gather enough evidence to be able to reach findings. And so when you have these incidents where additional allegations will arise, you know, maybe a situation where it is going to get investigated, but it isn't necessarily going to be something that's included in my current investigation. And the reason for that is that we're trying to reach a conclusion on the issues at hand, and maybe those other issues can be handled separately in a separate investigation. Oh, that's interesting. That I didn't know, and I think a lot of people were just assuming, oh, they'll start to, to look at other incidents that, that might have happened over the years as well. So... If, from what you've said there as well, so if somebody doesn't want to speak to you during an investigation, you can't force them to speak to you. They're within their rights to say, no, nope, I don't want to be part of this. Absolutely. Now, there is a caveat to that, right? Like if th that is absolutely the case with anybody who is not employed by the company. 
Um, ah. If the, the person that doesn't want to speak with, with me is an employee of the company, I personally cannot make anyone talk to me as an external investigator, but the company may have policies that require that person to speak with me. They don't have that power over former employees. So to the extent that anybody that was involved in this is no longer an employee of, an, of the organization, I wouldn't have the power to compel them to speak to me, nor would the organization. Oh, that's very interesting as well. Now, the the case of the Whitecaps, which is primarily what, what we're looking at and chatting about on our show in general. Now, I know you've nothing to do with this investigation, and we're just speaking in general from other investigations you've had. So, so looking from previous experience from yourself, from your firm, when, when you're dealing with something so old and you're dealing with a case where, in, in this case, the head coach is currently in Jamaica and uh, the women affected are all across North America, when you go into an investigation, are you given a time scale of we'd like to have this done by a certain date or can you take it as long as you want? And, and on average, how long do these kind of investigations take? I, I, I guess they could go on for months. They could, absolutely. So, um, yeah, sometimes I'll have a company say, hey, you know, this is really important that we get this wrapped up as quickly as possible. But I will say that that is the aim and goal of every investigator in every investigation, because like I said, one of those kind of basics of uh, an investigation that will withstand scrutiny is that it was conducted promptly. Um, and that is going to be impacted. It's obviously a subjective standard. It's going to be impacted by the fact that, you know, here in this case, you've got witnesses all over the world. Their availability may be limited. That's going to come into play. Um, so somebody, an employer might say, yeah, we want to get this wrapped up as quickly as possible. But it, it would not be prudent or um, reasonable to say this has to happen in two months. Because what if you have some critical witnesses who are willing to speak with you but aren't available within that time frame? Ah, yeah. Um, so, you know, you, that, that will certainly impact it. Um, you, generally speaking, would not delay an investigation in the hopes that you could convince somebody to participate. Right. Um, you know, if, if they've spoken to you and said, I, I'm not willing to talk to you about this, um, you can explain, you know, it would be great if you would, but you, know, you can't make them, and so that would not be a reasonable circumstance. Now, like, as an example, um, the recent investigation concerning the Chicago Blackhawks that investigation was done by external investigators, and that took about five months to complete. And yeah. um, I don't remember exactly when the the claims originated, um, when the, when the alleged conduct occurred, but I know it was sometime later. So that was an investigation that wasn't um, conducted contemporaneous with the allegations. It was conducted sometime later, and that that one took about five months. And then more um, recently, also remember the allegations against Larry Nassar. Uh, yeah. That also was conducted by external investigators, and that investigation took about 10 months. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head how many witnesses were in the Chicago Blackhawks investigation, but I know for the investigation against Larry Nassar concerning um, his conduct in the Olympics Committee and the University of Michigan, I know that there were at least like 68 witnesses. And so the number of witnesses and the complexity of the issues, um, that will prolong an investigation, um, you know, as compared to, say, an investigation that only concerns three people, um, all of whom still work for the company and who you have access to. That would be a much quicker investigation. Okay. In regards to a situation like the Whitecaps are going through just now, 
both head coaches who are the centre of these allegations then went on to, to still be involved in soccer. As an investigator, would you have scope to speak to the the companies, or in this case, the, the clubs and organisations that these coaches went on to, to work with to find out what information you were given about why they had been left or why they had fired, been fired from their previous jobs? Yes. So as an investigator, I have free reign to reach out to any individuals I think would be helpful or relevant to my investigation. Um, when you get into questioning a company about someone's employment record, that can get a bit tricky. Um, I know here in the U.S., there are real concerns about how much a former employer is permitted to share about mm. the reason why somebody left the organization. Um, there's been a number of lawsuits for like defamation um, uh, when an employer shares information about the reason someone was let go. And so I know in general, uh, a lot of employers are reluctant to share anything other than, yes, this person worked here from this period, time period to this time period. They no longer work here. Um, some even refrain from saying whether they would rehire that person for fear of um, a lawsuit with regard to what they've disclosed. So I could certainly reach out to other organizations to ask that information, but I may not actually get any information with regard to that, someone's term of employment, because of what I just spoke about, the, the fears of um, lawsuits. Yeah, that makes sense, because when I worked in Scotland, I worked in banking, and whenever someone left the bank, they just got a standard reference, no matter why it was that they left the bank. So, yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, final thing to ask you. So once the investigation's done, everything's wrapped up, you're, you're happy, you've spoken to everyone you're going to speak to, you've got your conclusions, you've done your report. What's the, the usual end procedure of this? You, you would put together a report that you'd present to the, the companies involved. Um, in this case, it's already been said it's going to get made public. So does the full report get made public or do people have the right to redact stuff that you've put in the report? Or do you have no say on that at all? Um, so I don't have any say in terms of what happens with the report because it, the, the report itself is work products that belong to the company for whom I've done the investigation. Right. So they have free reign to release whatever information they want to. Oftentimes, there will be some redactions to protect the privacy of witnesses who are involved. But generally speaking, you know, that's not a public document. Um, in a lot of instances, like the Blackhawks, I know the White, uh, Whitecaps have indicated that they plan to release um, the report. It's done as kind of a showing of good faith. Look, this is what we've done to investigate this. We're taking it seriously. Um, and then along with that, they will typically offer some sort of action plan. Look, we've seen this information. This is how we're going to handle it moving forward. You know, we, we want you to know that we take this seriously and we don't want this sort of thing to happen again if there is some sort of finding of wrongdoing. Yeah. Um, but normally, in a normal investigation, that information isn't public. And really only the complaining party and the respondent are entitled to know the nature of the allegations and the outcome of the investigation. Okay, that's very useful to know. Thank you so much for your time today, Lindsay. That's been very insightful. I'm sure our listeners will find that as well. I very much appreciate your time today, and, and thank you so much. Oh, thank you. 
So some great insight into sexual misconduct investigations there from, from Lindsay. I, I certainly learned a lot. I find it very interesting and useful. Hopefully you all did as well. I, I think it does give you some real insight into how this is going to, to work from a White Cat's perspective, what these investigators are going to go in and look for, what they can do, what they can't do. You can find Lindsay's firm, McFadden, Ingham and Omart at MIOLLP.com. So a couple of specific things to talk about that, that came out of that. Now, first of all, so we've talked about MLS have instructed their investigators to look at both the 2008 Barada and 2011 Busby incidents. Now, we spoke on the show about, oh, I wonder if that means that they can then look at what happened in the, the Whitecaps Academy or the Blondell incident or any of the other incidents that's happened. So as Lindsay explained there, that the scope of the investigation can't take into account other incidents, at least not initially. So if things come to light while they're investigating it, they can refer back to the people that's hired them, so in this case MLS, about the stuff that they've subsequently found out, and then MLS will decide if they want that included in the this investigation or if that gets pushed aside for potentially a, a further investigation. So, so that kind of surprised me a little bit because I thought they would have free reign to look into everything, but it would seem not. It kind of does make sense in a way because right now at the, what's come up is due to the letter that uh, or the coming forward of Mallory uh, for the 2011 issue. And because it was it was tightly connected to the 2008 because it came out of that same blog, maybe that's the reason why they're able to bring 2008 in there. Now, you mentioned she mentioned that if other things come up during the investigation, like Kyra McCormick has talked to those parents of the 2015 or 16 incident in the yeah. so if, if it, while they're talking to her if that comes up then they could easily go back to mls and talk about that i'm assuming it, and that's it, what they mean by that it would be surprising if it didn't because yeah. these things are very related you know michael you're right that the, or the process that um the process that Lindsay talked about might require them to get permission from mls or get clarification on the scope and whatever from mls but it would be shocking if if there isn't some connection to or isn't some uh, investigation into the residency issue. The Blundell one. That's more of a criminal it, case. Right? Yeah, maybe maybe not as much, but maybe. Um, but Yeah, the, the, I, I think probably not. But I mean, the other one, it, the, the mother of the child had said, the Whitecaps had said, don't go to the, the press, yeah. don't make a big thing of this. So again, it falls into the kind of cover-up scenario yeah. so i would be surprised if it doesn't come up as well but it's whether mls then want to, to deal with that yeah the white cabs do have like they have someone in the police department or who they connect with who yeah. helps them some kind of liaison right or yeah they've like got a liaison. I, don't, I don't know what, i don't know what the title is i don't know what it is but yeah. i do i've talked to people who have talked to me about how how it works and how it helps the anonymity of you know, people within the organization who maybe have issues or make mistakes or whatever, and it helps them guide them through. I also know, I also know police officers who've told me they've had incidents with players before who, you know, they've had to deal with not big issues, but some issues where they've had to deal with players and stuff. And yeah, so th there is ways that like with the Blundell stuff, I think that they, they can mechanisms they have or ways they have to deal with them. And I think they tried with the residency one, they tried to go through those channels 
to keep it as a low profile as possible. But obviously the mom was not, was not keen on that. I know, I know um, from hearing in the past from other people that there are a number of, I know I could say for sure Canadian hockey teams that do have that the same kind of connection liaison with police forces. I don't know how much prevalent it is in the U S at all, mm-hmm. but definitely in Canada with the hockey teams there are. So another thing that came out, the investigators, they're not legally allowed to subpoena somebody. So if someone at the Whitecaps decides, I don't want to talk to these investigators, then they don't have to. And in the case of like Busby, because he's denying everything, I think the chances of him speaking to the investigator may be slim. Yeah. And the thing is about the subpoena is that like it makes sense for your example of Busby. Like you don't want he just if if his lawyer says i'm assuming his lawyer was saying don't put yourself up there because you're going to incriminate yourself anyways and there's if if, so i don't i don't think i don't think bob brada's going to speak to these guys it's no i don't think he would be able to because of the court case exactly so i don't i I don't think there's going to be any and um but the thing is if certain people don't speak to the these investigators, and they're not, and they're in this listed that that they're not like they're not listed in the report afterwards. People are going to make a uh, you know added one plus one to find out that these people refuse to speak. Yeah. So it's going to be diff- definitely clear that who did speak and who didn't speak. Which, which I mean, yeah, I think I think the main um, people who are being accused of things, I understand why they wouldn't speak. Like Barada, like you said, is, you know, it's a court case. So he's obviously not going to talk about it while it's in court. And Busby has, I think, would feel he said his, I'm sorry, I'm guessing he would feel he said his, what he wants to say to the Guardian and denying the accusations. But when it comes to the football organization, it would be pretty damning if, if, especially those who have been, uh, put on leave or suspended or whatever, if they chose not to speak to these investigators, I think that silence would speak volume to the people in this community. Yeah. I mean, this could go on for months. Uh, The aim, as Lindsay said, of all these investigations is to wrap things up as promptly as they can, but whilst doing a thorough job in the process. And it's going to be impacted by availability, the fact that you're dealing with people in different countries, probably different continents as well. It was interesting that, that the investigators, they've got the scope to reach out to anyone that they feel is useful to the investigation. And that includes future employee employers of the, the two head coaches. But employment law is very difficult. And often, as Lindsay said there, employers will not say much about why their employee was let go when a new employer gets in touch for a reference. So there might not have been stuff shared and the the new employers might not know certain things and I guess that would all come to light. But it's interesting that they can they can expand this beyond just the players, the coaches and the Whitecaps into other organizations, clubs, etc., that have been impacted by this. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they speak to like, you know, like Coastal or where, I, I think that's where Bob Barada coached afterwards, Coastal, mm. to see who they reached out to because otherwise maybe they just went on reputation and they didn't really reach out to anybody. 
uh, to see why this person was let go all of a sudden from well, the national team and the white caps at the same time. One of the things that people want to want to know out of this, like just in general is like, I think one of the questions is if they had, if they had a reason enough not to renew contracts or to end contracts with coaches who were accused of things, even if they couldn't prove it because it was a, he said, she said incident, do they, or should they have be required to, you know, share that with other, other people, right? Because people I've talked to have said, look, what more could they have done? Like, could they have gone on and publicly said, said things about this person? Then they would, that would be defaming them. Right. And so, yeah, that's, that's the, the that's, issue. So I think people, I think what people want in general is they want, regardless of how this actually played out in the future, I think what, what people want is if someone is let go around issues of making athletes, especially minors <laughs> unsafe, um, that other organizations where someone could be working with minors need, need to know that. And, and, and the other, the other factor, or one of the, one of, for me, one of the key factors is this: is people within the organization breaking the trust of the players, and they've gone with, gone to them in confidence, and sharing those things yeah. that were meant in confidence with other people, uh, who those conversations were about. And when you do that, you tear down trust, and you make it so that people aren't going to share. And I think with the question, the language of what was the culture like of the organization, I think is going to speak to that and hopefully address some of that because. From what we know, which we know is not everything, there are some pretty significant signs that there were unhealthy things going on. And and the other thing is, is they're going to also probably figure out whether the players were in fear of retaliation if they did come forward and how, what, what kind of pressure was put on them. And that's the part that probably will be the biggest thing that will come out of this. Yeah. I, the thing as well, uh, as Lindsay mentioned towards the end there, when the report comes out, it could still have bits in it that's redacted. That's up to MLS if they want to. Although they're making it public, they could still redact some stuff from the public report. So hopefully it doesn't come to that and that everything's out there because otherwise it's just going to leave more questions as answers as to why that was redacted or, or whatever. It would be pretty poor of MLS to say we are going to release the findings of the report and then leave out, leave the public not knowing parts of the report. But that's... Not even down to the investigators, that's solely down to MLS. But they're the ones that's running this just now. I'm sure a lot more is going to come out in this the, in the coming weeks. Yeah, the thing is, one about the redacted part, sorry, I just want to mention one more thing. The redacted part usually is just whether there's a minor name involved or or some of the complaints don't want to be put forward. Oh, oh, it, it, the, NHL, the NHL report that they did had very little redacted, nothing, like they left, everything oh, was released. Oh, that's fine. But MLS has said, we will release the findings of the report. And yes, if you need to redact the name of a minor or someone, yeah. whatever, that's fine. But if the actual findings, like the what actually happened no, is redacted, no. then that's going to be a problem. Especially if, it, especially if it looks like it's covering up about someone or something. Yeah, And that's that's my point, that if the if they, they these clearly look like they've taken a lead from other organizations over what they're going to be releasing. So I think they're going to be taking a lead from the previous report from the NHL and not redacting anything and keeping everything out there. This is a, a story that's sadly going to run and run for a, a few more months to come, and we'll bring you updates as we get them on the show. But that is it for our Whitecaps chat for this episode. 
We're going to be moving on to talk about League One BC, Canadian Premier League, and we've got this week's Wavelength. And we'll be back with all of that after this. Hi, I'm Maxim Kipo from the Vancouver Whitecaps, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, from Brooklyn, New York, five-piece female garage band Habibi. That's a song taken from their self-titled debut album called I Got The Moves, released in 2013. I think it was featured in a... I want to say an Apple advert. It was definitely featured in some advert back in the day. But it's a fantastic song, a fantastic album. And I'm dedicating that one to Max Crapeau, who most certainly has the moves. And if it wasn't for his many moves this season, the Whitecaps would not be a playoff team. But we're moving away from the Whitecaps and MLS chat now for the rest of the show. In this part, and kind of going into the next part... We're going to turn our attentions to the newly announced League One BC. Three teams are now announced for the league. Whitecaps FC with the first team, TSS Rovers the second, and then just on Friday, out of Kamloops, Rivers FC. A little bit more on them later. We're going to turn our attention though in this part to TSS Rovers. Friends of the show... Proud to say we've been media partners for them since they launched in the USL in 2017 and we look forward to continuing our relationship with commentating and a lot more coverage for them as they move into League One BC into next year. So we just had to get the guys on the show just to to chat about the move to the new league, why they feel it's an ideal fit for them and why it is long overdue here in British Columbia and also the exciting news that they plan to allow fans a chance to own a share of the club. Real fan ownership. So I sat down with Colin Elms and Will Cromack from TSS to chat about that and a lot more beside. So go, put on your kettle, make your favourite hot beverage, grab your biscuit of choice, sit back and enjoy our feature interview for this episode as we talk all things TSS and League One BC. So delighted now to welcome back to the show a couple of guys we've not spoken to for a, a long time now. 
Colin Elms and Will Cromack from TSS Rovers and some big news coming out on the TSS front this past week. The new League One BC side. I mean, the, the rumours have been around for a while, but it must be nice, Colin, to, to make it all official. You're the second named team in League One BC. How are you feeling about it all just now? Oh, absolutely excited about uh, what what's going to be coming up here. Obviously, we've had we've had two years on the on the sideline here with no with no football at this level, and you know, without the pandemic, this would have been rolling already. And and so very very excited to be a part of uh, something that is purely Canadian, um, purely BC in particular. Uh, excited to be surrounded by the other groups, which we can't talk about right now, other than the Whitecaps, um, uh, and and excited to start to actually. Uh, put the pieces together to to make this thing run both both on and off the fields. Obviously, it's been tough the last couple of years with the pandemic. You've not been fielding any of your adult teams for, for the last two summer seasons. How difficult has it been for you as a club, as a, as a business as well, because obviously you've got the academy side of it, to, to get through this pandemic and come out the other side in one piece? It, uh, it, it's been very difficult to be honest. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're running a business, private business. We have our own indoor facility that has rent. Um, you know, we weren't able to just give park permits back and not use them. And so, so yeah, it, it's, there are certainly some moments early on, not only from a health and welfare perspective, where is all this going, but, um, what are we going to do here? Right. And, you know, obviously the, the, the government, has stepped up and come in uh, to to try and help the the small business people through through uh, and honestly uh, without it we I'm not sure I'm not sure where we would be right now um, and then the young players in our program who you know went through lots of stops and starts and lots of physical distancing training and you can't play games at, at, uh, against opponents, but you can't even play games within your own training session, stretched our staff beyond belief. Um, the players, honestly, uh, and Will can attest to this because he, he, he has two teams in our environment. The players were, were fantastic, weren't they, Will? Yeah. They, like we, we, I, I was like thinking at some point, a whole bunch of them are going to say, I just don't want to do this anymore, you know? And, <laughs> And the and the weird part is is our our club during the pandemic actually grew by 15, 20%. We actually oh, wow. added two more teams into our into our fold and and stuff. But our academy impacted like the like the community was. Um, you know, lots of unknowns. Uh, uh, we tried to stay in front of it with our COVID protocols over the course and literally, I don't know how many times we we had to stop and change gears and react to to new uh, uh, restrictions or loosening or tightening um, uh, just, just some absolutely off the wall kind of, kind of moments where we had to, had to sort of navigate our way through uh, periods of time. Um, and to be honest, the staff, everybody just kind of got used to uh, the next day being completely different than the previous <laughs> one. So, yeah. I will say this, Mike, um, and it, it was challenging for, you know, everybody, 
there wasn't anybody out there that wasn't impacted. If you couldn't go and report on sports, then what's there, you know, to do, so to speak. Right. So um, what, what was good about and has been good about TSS and Rovers the whole time is that we've always been trying to be leading edge. And so we were ahead of things in so many ways, just because of who we were Um, our, you know, training in masks, our COVID mandates, all these sort of things. um, The guys just got, you know, down with it and, and, and kept carrying on and, and trying to make the most of it. What I, what I also would say is that it gave us an opportunity to, um, you know, take the 10,000 foot view on all the things that we wanted uh, the pyramid of our club to be and, uh, you know, to lean in on stuff like when Rovers was coming back, what are we going to do? So our RFPs into League One are, um, you know, making partnerships with um, youth clubs. So now that we're, uh, helping, assisting, and and participating in a club um, of 2,500 families um, that we are impacting uh, with our coaching and whatnot. I would say that we are, you know, all of this. We want to we want to be supporter owned in part at the Rovers level, um, and I know we'll touch on that in a second. But you know, it gave us a chance to go uh, dot some eyes, cross some t's, get legal work done, um, and just say this is going to end. And we're going to be ready um, to go back and play properly. And, um, you know, we kept in touch with all the Swan Guard people and, Bur- you know, City Burnaby and just making sure that we, they knew we're going to hit the ground running when this comes out. And, um, and BC Soccer, to their, to their credit, kept working away at putting League One together as well. And so, you know, sometimes you're on the field and you don't get an opportunity to do all the work that's necessary to um, come out. So that's a positive um of having time to reflect and go how are we going to come out better and serve the community better and serve our players better and i think um we'd all look right now and say that was hard but that was great you know we we got we got done what we needed to get done yeah Yeah. just to further what what will was saying about our relationship in the community we have a what we've called an alliance with the vancouver athletic football club and they actually, uh, Will said 2,500 families. They actually have 2,800 families. I believe they, they're the biggest club in, in Vancouver uh, from a youth perspective. And so we're starting to embed our staff and our methodology and various things. Um, we're at the front end of it, um, but uh, starting to work. And really what it's done is it's given us, even though we have academy uh, environments that go all the way down to sort of U7, U8, um, it gives us a, an audience of people uh, and, and what we would call an underbelly below our, our uh, BCSPL teams uh, to uh, help to make better and, uh, um, and, and to have those players become part of, our, of part of our club and part of our process. I'm going to say over the next couple of years that the majority of the players that will play for rovers uh, at U13 and above, will will come through the the van uh, van athletic environment. So we're pretty excited about that. That's fantastic. Gives you a good pool of players for the future yeah. as well, and getting a good foothold on the market. I, I mean, before we we get into some of the meat and bones of, of League One, when you look back at the last five, ten years, the struggles that that you've had as a club with BC soccer and the local community, can you quite believe where you're sitting now that you're now the second named club of an official BC soccer league and you're going to be playing in a league with the Whitecaps and (laughs) other clubs that... We can't let comment. We can't let Colin have this moment. He has, we have, 
We can't. It, you, there's not enough time on this. Uh, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll Cole's notes that you know. <laughs> I, you go back in time. All, all, a lot of our grievance is always just being about access, right? Mm-hmm. We just wanted to be a part of the process, be inside the tent, not not be outside. And and so yeah, you go through a, a bunch of periods where where you know things got a little crazy um, from from a legal perspective. You look back on it and you you go mm, probably shouldn't have done that that way and and but at the end of the day it 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 actually I think moved the goalposts not very far but a little bit and enough um, and and I have to thank uh, Canada Soccer and obviously BC Soccer uh, there's a real push in the country now uh, regarding inclusion and I think we've recognized as a nation a footballing nation that we need to embrace all stakeholders regardless of whether they're a nonprofit or for-profit there's lots of people out there that are doing a good job and and the reality is is Canada soccer has 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 basically uh, broken that barrier and brought people into the fold um, and so yeah I am I am as a born and raised British Columbian uh, who started playing soccer at, at the age of four in West Point Gray um, uh, somebody who's represented their province been in a, their national team pool played at you know fairly high level uh, most of my life and coached uh, i'm so excited to be sitting at the table now and having input and and being able to debate what happens next and and whatnot that's really all we've 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 ever wanted and so it's uh there's lots of work to do um you know we as we all know, if you're paying attention, you know, John Herdman's squad who we're just embracing right now and they're racing towards qualifying for our first World Cup in like forever. Um, there's not a single BC-born player on that team. Yep. That's been born and raised and, and, and brought through the system here. And that makes people like Will and I very sad. Um, and yeah. we want to be the people that help to change that. So, And that's, you know, you know us well, Mike. Like, that's what we set out at the very beginning with rovers at the top of our pyramid, you know, driving down middle of the night to Eugene to give the guys an opportunity to, to show their stuff. And, and, um, you know, we, we, we never want to use the word develop because we, we, we just basically created a platform to, to help guys get noticed again. Um, and now we have a complete, a pyramid. I mean, there was a, a, a few glasses of wine tossed back as we sort of recognized in the last eight to 10 months year that we all of a sudden went from, um, you know, people like my son never being allowed to play in a, in a 11 aside youth game um, all of a sudden to one of the, one of, if not the most complete club in, I don't know, Western Canada, BC. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's crazy and cool and it's, it's dovetailing at the same time as the world is talking about, uh, you know, inclusion in all sorts of different ways. It's dovetailing at the same time with a women's team that just won a gold medal um, with a, a, a non BC player represented on a, on a, a men's team. That's, that's doing fantastically well centered out of BC, which is crazy uh, CPL that's getting, you know, Forge just got into the the, the Champions League proper. Yeah, amazing. You know, it, it, this is just like beyond the the. I can't even I, begin to describe. I'm how guessing that there's that a pl- there's a player on some of the teams that Forge have played that makes more money 
than the entire payroll of Forge. Right. And, and, and think about that, you know, when you talk about inclusion, there's, there's a group that's, you know, like their DNA is born and bred from an academy called Sigma. And, um, and you know, so again, like when people start to recognize it, they see it. Um, so it's just awesome to be involved and it's awesome to start trying to influence um, um, the, the work at the, at the ground level. And, and, you know, whether these, players have all landed off spaceships or not, we still have a ton of work to do, uh, particularly in our province, and we can't wait to get 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 going. It's, it's going to be fun. I mean, it's long overdue here. They've had League One Ontario, they've had the Quebec League, and I, I we won't get into all the, the politics in BC, but there's obviously been a lot of self-interest in the game here for a number of years. And like the dream scenario for me years ago would have been you get all the top amateur leagues you get them together you've got a really solid and high quality bc league for whatever reasons that never happened so now we've got this there's seven teams you're the the second name team what was it like when you saw the proposal because obviously they tried to do this a couple of years ago and there wasn't a, a lot of interest but full credit to bc soccer they didn't want to let this die they wanted to move this forward what was it about the proposal that made you think, you know what, this is the right track. This is, this is what we want to be a part of. This is the way forward for this province. I think what's happening across the country in our game right now, it's going to take some time, is we're finally getting to the point where we're properly standardizing uh, things, whether it's on-field, off-field, governance, uh, all that sort of stuff. And, and knowing that this this uh, RFP that we all tackled to come into this league was the front end of this standardization. Like we, we have a, what's called a national youth club license, um, which we're one of 13 groups in, in the province. Now there's another level of club licensing that the teams, the clubs in this environment will have to uh, reach to, uh, to maintain themselves over the next, next few years. I don't know the, the timelines there, but we went through that process and it was cumbersome, but very revealing. It made us look in the mirror at what we do. It made us way better at, at who we are. And I think this is just another step um, in that in that model. Um, I am I'm a pretty cynical guy, as you know, about some of the stuff that's gone around here for, for years. I actually believe it's going to take some time. The coach development that's come in now is going to take some time to to find its way, um, the the new standardization, uh, holding people's feet to the fire, which Canada Soccer has been doing. Um, you know, every six months we're in meetings, right? How's this coming? You didn't quite hit the mark on this. Where's this at? What's the what's the action plan? All that sort of stuff. Some some groups had standards, I think, uh, across the country, but they were not. They were internal. And there was nobody outside kind of saying, you can't do it that way. You, you, this is this is the best practice. You need to do it this way. And I think all of this is is coming together uh, at a time where we're starting to sort the youth stuff out uh, and get it get it more on track and, and more best practices. And this is just a just an offshoot of it. And then obviously, we know as when we when we brought this thing to being in 2016, the, the, this age, these age groups, this sort of 18 to 22 has just been a void in our footballing world. Um, and I know, you know, I played in the VMSL. 
for many years and, and stuff. Uh, there's stuff happening there without a doubt. There's an outlet there. There's some very good players there. There's some good clubs running, running things. Um, but the 18, 19, 20 year old would get kind of swallowed up and pushed aside and, and whatnot. And so I think, you know, like you said, Mike, ultimately it'd be nice to be running this environment, you know, eight, nine months of the year and have everybody get along and, and build towards this. Maybe one day it's like that. Um, uh, but at the moment we just need to get it out the door, uh, in, in, in the, in the period of time that it's going to exist in for now, and then kind of, kind of see where it goes from there. I think once people see the, you know, the quality of it and the presentation of it and stuff, people will start to em- embrace it more and say, why, why is this only running from April to August? Yeah. I think the other thing you want to know, uh, you know, Mike is, is the reality is. BC soccer was, was, was interested in everybody's feedback. Like it was actually a really inclusive, um, and I'm, uh, you know, I hate to be using that word, but it was a really proactive. It wasn't top down. You must do X, Y, Z peer reviews of each other. Um, the seven clubs that will, will get announced, um, you know, all came together to sort of say like, we're in this for the right reason. And I think then it comes down to, it's going to come down to integrity um, like CPL, um, you know, like a, an MLS club suggesting that they play Canadians or they don't, um, mm-hmm. it's going to come down to some integrity around, Hey, like eventually if we do get a Voyager's cup or Canadian championship spot for the winner, um, you know, don't just stick 28 year olds that happen to be in the VMSL or the best that kind of live here. Um, you know, do it 18 to 21 year olds so you can get guys picked. Uh, into the CPL and into the MLS and, and, and push them along. And our, you know, you know, us, we um, will take a few punches on the field um, to make sure that our 16, our best 16 year old, 15 year old, 18 year old, 19 year old guys coming back from university um, who are with us and um, who are in the area, uh, but show, signs of being one day a potential professional those are the guys we'll play and um and i think largely the groups that were on the calls um were aligned to that like let's not let's not fill up spots with um you know a 30 year old that happens to move here and used to play pro soccer but actually six and 18 to 21 year olds in this and let the cpl be a largely 23 um you know under 23 age group and um you know you've watched us many a time um, we've, we've, um, learned, uh, by putting kids feet to the fire. And this is exactly why this is so necessary. I mean, the, the great thing about the league, first of all, is you've got a men's league, you've got a women's league, which is long overdue here, a chance for, for the women to actually make some money, which they, they've not had the opportunity for, for a long time as well. No, we're not talking a lot when it comes to paying players, but it's, it's semi-pro. So there's that, but also for coaches as well, like you, you mentioned Forge earlier, Without the CPL, Bobby Smyrniotis, folk would not have found out what a wonderful coach he is. And he's still got a high ceiling that I feel if one of the, the MLS teams wanted to take a gamble on him, he's the kind of guy that you want to see make it because he's Canadian, he's come through the youth ranks and he would have moved up. When it comes to players, I, this is the concern I have for the first couple of years of it. Because... You're, you're having to sell this to the public. Now, I'm fine watching youth players under 23 
it's going to be a pretty level playing field, which the USL wasn't, if we're being honest, because there were some clubs that were very professional and had older guys, and then there's guys like yourself that's playing 15 and 16-year-olds, and that, was, that wasn't that was a level playing field. This certainly will be. But do you feel that there's a, quali- a, a big enough quality pool of players to sustain seven clubs at this stage? Well, I mean, so you you have to look at it uh, in a couple different ways. Um, you just alluded to the fact that nobody would have known about Bobby Smirnionis. Um, So there's going to be a whole section of that. Let's call that 25% that you never knew about because no one gave them a shot. I think the job is to find um, um, the, the guy that's moved here. Uh, that's playing in the league. I always use this example on my own youth teams. Um, I have two players, both from Algeria, Canadians. Um, we found them at the field. They were there playing soccer. And we said, do you play on teams? And they said, no. And we put them on our teams. Um, but there's many of those players. Um, and I I heard about this guy. He plays at Bayern now. Um, but he came from some places that are unknown to all of us on these shores. And, um, and he's doing quite well, I heard, um, but they're there. So, so my hope is that we find them and that we don't um, uh, make this a league based around, um, you know, what's just in front of us. Mm. Um, you're going to have to scout. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to develop. You're going to have to actually do the job. And I think um, when you practice the, the basis of, Leaders create leaders that create leaders. Um, you're going to start looking at coaches, helping those coaches in these youth clubs. Um, they're going to uncover players that were never there before. And while maybe initially you're going to have some interesting results, seven teams isn't really that many. You know, no. considering some of these clubs have 7,000 kids in them. Um, what, what is your roster size? Has that been confirmed yet or... 27. 27, okay. 27, but, you know, again, you know, you're going to have to start doing things that are interesting. If someone comes up to you and says, you know, i got three or four players, I'd like them to be around the training environment, and and you say, well, they're not ready to play, but we'll train them, then you're going to have to be flexible and help mm-hmm. um, because this is what's all about. you got to help. you got to actually start going, I'm going to actually give that 16-year-old some minutes in training with some of these guys who are going to kick them. And I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on the sort of finite amount of players standing at the doorstep on on things. I, I think ultimately, and yeah, Mike, you're right about the short term. I think ultimately we need to do a better job, right? Um, we need to do a better job of, of coaching the players that are underneath the BCSPL uh, that come in at U13. Um, we have to, our job is to, to teach these players how to play, not how to win at football. And I find that there's still, while the language and the structure has moved away from making winning important, winning is still far too important. Um, uh, we all know at the younger ages, you can pick teams and organize them in ways to give them the best chance of winning. But and in fact, you end up ignoring a whole bunch of aspects of their learning doing that, right? Now, as they get a little bit older, that goes away and the, the winning moves up on the, uh, on the menu. And you need to learn to adapt and stuff. But I, I think if you if you start down below and you start to build more uh, more of a, a player base, broaden the base, then then what comes out at the top eventually is going to be better. And the reality is, is I, I say this to our young players all the time. 
what a great time to be a footballer. Oh yeah. Right? We, we finally were the last first world country to have a domestic professional football league, <laughs> which is, you know, in its infancy stage, but it's growing. Um, we're going to host a world cup, which we've not been at forever in, in a couple of years. Uh, we got a, a coaching staff and a group of players cross our fingers on the cusp of possibly qualifying uh, you know all this momentum if i'm a little 12 13 year old kid right now i am so excited about what could be on the menu when i get a little bit older you know cpl could be 12 16 teams league one could be you know uh two tiers of eight mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like there could be so many uh, and when there's opportunity when there's opportunity then then people take things more seriously like i remember seeing the registration data uh, from BC soccer back in the eighties and 85, the North American soccer league collapsed, disappeared off the, off the face of the earth, killed me. Like it killed like any dreams I had for sure. Mm. As, a, as a player, you go look at the registration in 85, it went like this. Oh, really? And then in 86, it went like this. Vancouver 86ers. Mm-hmm. Now, much smaller portion where it was female back then. So it was mostly males. Uh, um, and that honestly was a reaction to opportunity. I think it was a reaction to, to, Hey, there's something up there that I can dream about. Right. There's a team playing at Swan Garden in front of oh, yeah. 4,000 people. That, that's right? the thing. Which Mike, if you actually think about this um, and this is one thing that, that people haven't touched on, there was only one Rovers. There was one Rovers at that level. So if you didn't make the white caps, and there wasn't enough room on Rovers. Um, what's the point in coming home? So all these guys in NCAA, you know, Andre Bear staying in Green Bay because mm-hmm. where where else can I go? Um, you know, you, you got loads of people that want to live at home for the summer after school, um, and uh, now have seven choices, right? Yeah, which is uh, fantastic. So I think that that's a that's a big big thing. League One has shown already in Ontario that they're. Um, Kids are coming home to Toronto and they're playing at their old um, their old club um, or one of the the varying League One clubs because now they don't have to go down to Columbus or they don't have to chase a USL team or they don't have to chase something that um, allows them to do it. So you know there might be some Nick Apostles who are now at you know Calgary um, coming back prior to their degree being done and going hell yeah I want to live in my mom's basement because it's free and she cooks me food. But I also get to play high-end soccer. Yeah, and, and put yourself I get to play right there. Yeah, exactly. Well, that seems the perfect point to take a break. But we will be back talking more League One BC, TSS Rovers, and fan ownership with Colin Elms and Will Cromack after this. Hi, I'm Matteo Puzzi, and you're listening to the AFTN Show. Well, I can change what I do. What's well, it? 
Welcome back to the AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio 101.9 FM. And kicking off this part, we're going all the way back to 1998, a band out of West Lothian in Scotland. They're called Foil. That's a song that's taken from their debut album, Spread It All Around, and that was called Control Freak. Has kind of nada surf popular vibes to it, but kind of stumbled across that song when I was going through some old albums and singles and stuff and forgot how good it was and how much I loved that song back in the day. Hope you enjoyed it too. I'm a control freak. Maybe some of you are that, that's listening as well. And if you'd like to have control of a football club, what better way than to become a part owner? And you don't get that opportunity very much here in North America, but TSS Rovers are about to provide you with that opportunity, a chance to own a share in the club, the League One BC side, What more could you want? And an ideal Christmas present, I'm sure, to boot. So we'll get back to our chat now with Colin Elms and Will Cromack from TSS just to talk a little bit more about League One BC and also about their plans for some fan ownership. The, The thing with TSS, you've always, it's always been about development. Yep. Yeah, you'd like the winning aspect as well, and I, I don't, I don't think they don't go hand in hand. So many folks say, "Oh, do you have to pick development or do you have to pick winning?" You can develop and win. Yeah, it, yeah, it, and it's it, certainly at this level. Certainly yeah. at this level, it's a big, um, it's a big part of the the piece. I think you have to start to learn to win, but I don't think you have to learn to win with a twenty eight year old, no, and a thirty year old. I think you have to learn to win and suffer the consequences, like. Um, you know, an English Premier League team, might who has to win, like literally it's the top of the menu. Um, but certain ones need to make sure they're playing players um, because they can't go and buy them, at, at, you know, especially after COVID. Yeah. So the, the truth is 100% winning will be an aspect of, um, you know, if you were to look at the Canada soccer's development model, it would be called uh, learn to compete. Um, and in that section is, hey, how, how to win and how to, you know, have a league standing and, and notice, by the way, that people look at it and they judge you on it and all those sort of things. Um, what, well, what it does mean is there's no integrity. You know, our integrity, though, still maintains that that 18 year old has to learn to win, not the um, not the veterans that have already come yeah. and gone. But you're, you're allowed some overage players. Yes. Yeah. yeah you need so, a couple of veterans in there to sort of guide the ship. Yeah. But do you feel that there's a, a worry that, because you know how young people are, they, they want to win trophies, they want to be able to brag to their friends. A cl- like with the Whitecaps being in it, and obviously we don't know the, the other teams that's going to be in it, but do you think, and obviously this will be in your recruitment, because this will be one of the questions I would imagine that you would ask them, uh, is there a danger that some of these guys are just want to go to the top teams? Because they know they're going to be winning and they've got a chance of getting a trophy or a medal at the end of it. I think there's a couple of things. Um, you know, one is um, people like playing more than they like winning the trophy, just the trophy, if they're sitting on the end of the bench. And if there's 24 players, like, like Pep says, um, only 11 like me each week. <laughs> um, so, you know, at the end of the day, am I getting quality development? 
uh, a lot of this will be based around university players, as you know. I mean, certainly CPL is is actually even has a draft. Um, are you developing? Is your coach demanding that you go get minutes? Um, we'll have conversations with those people to make sure that um, we can either accommodate or give them the honest truth. Um, and then I think at the end of the day, that um, starts to clean up some of those uh, problems because you know, you're not going to have 60 players on your roster and 50, um, 50 of them going, Oh, I'm super happy sitting here, not playing, but we want a trophy. Yeah. That's very true. I, and we've just, just, you know, in the build up to this, and obviously we can't reveal anything about the rest of the groups yet, but you know, th- there's already been, you know, WhatsApp groups and dialogue and, and I really like the, we know a lot of these people uh, from the past. We played with them coached against them um the transparency and the cohesion amongst the groups is already very apparent to me and so part of our problem in our game here which is really kind of weird is is we're we're very tribal um and we understand the tribalness in between the touch lines and the goal lines right when the when the 90 minutes is on but this is and i say this i've said this a thousand times this is not coke versus pepsi Right. I don't I don't want, you know, the team beside me to go out of business tomorrow so I can grab all their players. I I need them because we have to play somebody. Right. (laughs) And so the reality is, uh, you know, we're we're in this unique business where we have to, you know, compete and, you know, kick the hell out of each other in the 90 minutes. But then we need to understand each other and get along and be able to pick up the phone in a moment's notice when something goes wrong or weird and say, hey, what's going on here, right? And, and have a proper unfiltered conversation with, with the, what would be your opponent um, about stuff that, that's occurring. And I, my sense is, is that there's a really good group of people here that are gonna be pulling, everybody will wanna win for sure, um, but everybody's gonna be pulling in the right directions and making, making good decisions on behalf of the individual players and, and, and the overall player development, why this league has been brought into being. I'd add one more piece. You know, most of the most of the guys that we played against when we were in USL all recognized that we we handcuffed ourselves by um, choosing Canadians. Yeah. Um, and while they brought in uh, Ghanaians and uh, you know whatever, like whatever the the, the brand or model, or, or uh, they had a roster uh, of. Eight overage players. Yeah, yeah, all overage players and whatnot. So, yeah. Oh, you had some teams that had started uh, in the eleven almost every week for some strange reason. Yeah, right. But right. other teams were also using like forty odd players over the course yeah. of the hey, season well, as Redding well. Had, you know, Reading had eighty players listed on their team. I, I think as, as much as ninety yeah. at one point. Um, but um, you know what? What? What we will say is all those guys who played with us from you know, Waterman, Polisi Brothers, uh, Gardner, uh, Metcalf, uh, you know, they look back now and go, hold on a second. Um, that was a valuable experience. And we definitely lost to every one of those teams in our division each year, but we also beat every one of those teams. And we beat them with Canadians and we beat mm-hmm. them with guys that were not quite at their peak of their powers yet, but when they got to their peak of their powers, they got picked up professionally. And um, I think that that's a really valuable message that um, we don't have to share anymore because the players are sharing it themselves. And I think that we're getting better too. You know, Mike, 
when we when we first talked to you, we said this is a place where physios and broadcasters and coaches can all uh, be in development to get better. And and quite frankly, you know, year five now of doing all the background, doing all of the on the field. Um, if we aren't better by now, then we should fire ourselves. That's, that's true. Well, Colin that's did coming. fire him. Colin did fire himself. He he took himself <laughs> out the head coaching thing. Team was much I just, better. I, after actually, that. I just stopped showing up one day. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from League One BC announcement, the other big announcement that that you had this week was something which is quite unusual in North American football right now because of the way that the business models work in all the leagues. And it's something I've had a little bit of involvement and chats with you in in the build-up to this. But you're looking to have some fan ownership in the club. What can you tell us about that just now to to get people interested? And why is this an important step for you to do? From day one, it was always about uh, community. It was never, ever, ever about us. It was strictly stewarding, doing what's necessary for the Canadian player. Um, And we count ourselves as supporters. I mean, whether we are coaching in the moment or not, one day we're taking our grandkids to the grass and we're eating a meat pie and drinking a beer. And, um, you know, really it is about the supporters. Now, how do you break that in the governance of Canadian soccer and all that sort of stuff? That was the work, you know, four and a half odd years um, organic Swan Guardians showing up, uh, becoming friends, uh, truly believing that they had a voice and us wanting them to have that voice, um, authentically working together to try to build young Canadian players and a model that we see all around the world um, and bringing it to our shores. Are we a very overdeveloped um, soccer culture? No. Are we, uh, do we have room to grow in that uh, area? Absolutely. So when it came down to it, um, we had emotional ownership. You know, we had these people who felt that they were a part of the development um, and we wanted that to be real. Uh, Do we, you know, we want it to be 50 plus one Germany style, Danish style, um, whatever that may be, but we have to fall within the governance. So, um, you know, coming up shortly, we'll be just literally selling um, shares uh, of ownership um, through a legal mechanism like stock, regular stock. And um, people will be offered um, to have a vote. There'll be a couple of supporters who represent, you know, it'd be like the spy on cop being on uh, Liverpool's um, board, but, you know, literally having a vote um, along with Colin, myself and, and Brendan. And, um, you know, there'll be a vote on everything. And ultimately, we would control the on-field. Uh, but if we decide we want to do something crazy, they can tell us no. And um, yeah, Important to stress that they're not picking the team. Correct, correct. Some folk might be like, oh, this yeah. is like real fantasy there, football few, here. A few guys who think they could. Um, and uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't deny them probably. But yeah, no, it, it, it's, been, it's been the dream from the day one uh, is to participate with everybody who wants a better Canadian soccer and to have them... Um, you know, be a part of that. And, you know, quite frankly, we'll be the first semi-pro pro club in Canada uh, in the football um, structure to be in that model. And, um, you know, we don't have to look far to, to see how it works around the world, mm-hmm. and, but just copy it and, and just participate in that model and then give everybody the chance to um, own their own soccer team. 
which is we're we're just we're just finalizing all the details right now and we're hoping that between the middle of november and end of november things will will be out in the public domain and uh, people will be able to to go somewhere on a you know a website hit a button and get involved we're super excited about it yeah and it's important to note um that this is all uh properly uh organized full uh you know mous with the supporters trust uh, spirit of the rovers who are all guys that were at the end when we were moving when our players were moving the benches they were moving it for our future partners and uh and uh we you know we love all that and it just it just really feels good and it feels authentic and it feels exactly what was needed and um you know eventually colin and willie um are no longer uh um you know, on the sidelines and sporting directing or anything like that, but the fan, you know, we're going to be that supporter we speak of. Um, so we're really just thrilled that we can give back to the community in some way and have those people, um, you know, sit by the water cooler and tell someone that they own part of a soccer club in Canada. Yeah. yeah I'm excited to see how it goes. We'll obviously talk a lot more about it as more stuff comes out over the, the next few months. Last thing then, just to wrap this up, it's obviously been a, hellish and hectic two years for you it's only going to get busier now what do the next six months look like for you guys <laughs> i just oh, quit. we've already <laughs> we've already started to look at players um for for both squads uh frankly already starting to talk to some some people maybe um, don't take my recommendations this time because some of them <laughs> didn't pan out too well <laughs> all voices matter <laughs> all voices matter We've been out to, to some games uh, in the in the local university, obviously, and 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 in BMSL Fraser Valley Soccer League um, over the next little bit. Um, I think we're, uh, you know, going to be having an open tryout, uh, even though th- that doesn't occur at the youth levels much anymore. But we think it's important. There's definitely players uh hiding around corners here uh, uh in in the lower mainland that need an opportunity to come out and run around and and show uh show that they need to play at this level so we'll be organizing that and getting that out in uh in in the new year and in, in due time so that you know if people want to uh, come and show us that they need to be on the squad they'll they, they can come and do that um meanwhile all the rest of the business is running too so yeah we've we've been in a bit we've been hibernating um, and, and it's helped us to plan the off-field stuff. Uh, but yeah, we're fully aware after doing this for three years, amongst all the other things that we do, we're fully aware that the work uh, level of work is about to ramp up significantly. Mm. And uh, as, as uh, Christmas approaches, I'm sure there'll be a long laundry list of, of things um, that are both player and off-field uh, that we're going to have to conquer here pretty fast to make this thing work, so... Get get all your merchandise out for all the Christmas shopping. Yeah, exactly, and uh, maybe a share to a club uh, for Christmas that you can buy yeah. your uh, your yeah. sweetie pie. Um, you know, and like all soccer people, Mike, in this community, we do it around our. You know, we get up early, and we do it after work. So it's uh, you know most of the work uh, we're doing in day is our is our jobs that help us be able to have our passion at night. So it is what it is, and um, if it wasn't. Uh, if it wasn't for football, I'm not sure what we'd be doing. Yeah, I'd be listening to all the CDs behind me. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to take you a while. It will. 
Well, as always, an absolute pleasure talking to you guys. I wish you all the very best with the share issue. We'll talk a little bit more about that in future shows. Really looking forward to League One BC kicking off. Hoping all the timings are good and there's no overruns with Provincial Cup finals and stuff right. this year that we've had in previous years. I'm sure there won't be. Yeah, well, yeah. No, I don't, I don't no. trust anything. I'll be on. The, I'll, be, I'll be trying to piece together a lineup with you and calling it left and right back. <laughs> hey, if there's an overage player spot, I'm going for the trial. <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Really Thanks, Mike. That's outstanding, mate. Talk to you soon. Cheers, guys. Take care. So thanks so much as always to Colin Elms and Will Cromack from TSS Rovers just chatting all things League One BC and their excitement for the new league, what it can mean to development in the province and of course a little bit about fan ownership which we'll we'll come to in a sec but League One BC, we now know the three of the seven teams that are going to be in the, the league from next season, Rivers FC out of Kamloops is the newly announced third team. The club's name is derived from the North Thompson River and the South Thompson River, which converge in Kamloops. The club is going to field teams in both the male and the female divisions, as all seven teams will be doing. They're affiliated with Thompson Rivers University, the Wolfpack out there in Kamloops. The head coaches of the men and the women's team will be the Wolfpack head coaches. So that's John Antelov in charge of the men's team and Mark Pennington in charge of the female team. John Antelov has been fantastic with how he's built the Wolfpack program up in the, the last couple of seasons. They've had some really good stuff there. The club's expected to use both Thompson Rivers Hillside Stadium and MacArthur Island Park uh, as the home field. So it's great to have them in. And I think the important thing as well is it's important that we've got teams not just in the lower mainland and maybe the island, but you're actually getting a team out in the interior. Because if you want League One BC to be a proper provincial-wide league, you need teams out in the interior. So we've got one in Kamloops just now. That's going to leave... Another Okanagan team hopefully to come in down the road as well, but it's it's great stuff, Naveed, to, to have teams now throughout there. And in your time at UBC, you're going to have played out at Thompson Rivers a lot. Yeah, great coach from TRU. I mean, I, I've met with him a couple of times, had a few interactions with him, a few conversations. Great guy, quality guy. And as you mentioned, yeah, it's going to be great for the game in the province. And uh, boy, I wish I could have played, that's for sure. I know. It's it's one of these leagues that's like guys like you that yeah. have just been so ideal for and it's just that lost generation that, that yeah. never had this opportunity. I mean, Zach, I take it you got a chance to, to see all the branding and everything. I love it. I love their colour scheme. I love... The jersey. The, the jersey is oh, fantastic. Beautiful. I like the badge as well. Yeah. Zach's laughing. I, <laughs> are you not as won over by it? Uh, no, I, I, I like the name. Uh, I'm happy for that. I, I don't like the, the the badge logo is like it's not bad it's not like wow but it's not bad like it's pretty good um the the <laughs> the uniform to me it's not a uniform it, it's a jersey I hate when folks say uniform <laughs> when I saw the kit Michael there um, we go at first I was like oh that's kind of nice but now now 
Now, when I look at it, I can't see like just a hybrid between Holland and Argentina. <laughs> like that's all I see. It's like someone took part of the, the Dutch jersey and slapped in the Argentine jersey in the middle, and that's, a, that's right. and that's not a knock against them. I'm no. excited that they're a part of this. I think that, it's a slick jersey. It does yeah. remind me of a cycling jersey a little bit. There you go. But yeah. uh, I, I, what, what is what like? How far is this a departure from the university's colors? Because I didn't look at that. Is it they play orange. black and orange? No, orange. Yeah. yeah, black okay, and so orange. There, there's yeah. some connection there. That's nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's going to be a Rivers v Rovers. That could get quite confusing for me commentating in some of these games. <laughs> rivers on the ball. No Rovers on the ball. Rivers, Rovers, Rivers. Rivers. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's great. We know three of the teams now. I, I'm thinking there's going to be announcements every Friday, but that's not been confirmed yet. But... Yeah, Rivers and Rovers, going back to Rovers, the chat about fan ownership. So there's still more to come out. And if you're interested, get in touch with TSS and they'll tell you more. But it's an exciting way forward, Zach. Will you be rushing to buy some shares in, in TSS? No. Um, I, I think you're going to say that. That's why I keep you first. I think it, No, I think it's great. And as someone who has been in numerous meaningful and significant conversations about fan ownership over the last five, four, almost five years. Um, and what that could look like and how to make that meaningful and variations on that. I think it's in, like an encouraging sign. And I, I, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the, the specifics are once they, once they roll it out and, yeah. and, and really what it, uh, the, the kind of the model and the way they choose to do this. Cause there's lots of ways you can do it. There's, um, yeah, there's lots of different forms it could take, and that that that'll that'll shape, I think, how meaningful it is or how much engagement it has. But in principle, I, I'm I'm really happy and really excited that they're doing this. I think it's a great uh, great step forward. Um, obviously, my my interest in the topic has to has to do with f- further up the Canadian footballing pyramid, and I'm I'm, I'm hoping that. Uh, there will be CPL sides that have a fan ownership element to to how they to how they do things, which is not a not as easy to do. The, the further up the pyramid you go, obviously, but um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays plays out. And I think those in the CPL or those who want to be in the CPL will will at least be monitoring this to see what kind of engagement it gets and and, and how much yeah. how much people are willing to, willing to get behind it. Which again will be shaped on the approach they take. Now, I mean, Steve, uh, you own the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, I have shares in that. Uh, I, I think I you own the whole team. No, not the whole team. Just oh. a share. Um, I think it's a. I think it's a great thing uh, to have this kind of thing, as long as it's more meaningful than being a founding member of the Whitecaps too. Um, <laughs> you got your uh, certificate. Uh, yeah, I don't know where that Did is. You, right. Yeah, now. I don't think I got a certificate, and I was member I number for, one. I was member I, I, number I, one. I might have forgotten it at the stadium after the opening game. Um, it, blew, uh, yeah. it blew away. <laughs> yeah. uh, like they, they got to make it more meaningful. Like uh, if, even if you don't, um, like 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 it's not real ownership, whatever it is, it, it you got to have like some kind of meaningful thing where it's some kind of product or something like that. You the, the connection to the team more than just a certificate. So the bar for Steve is real low for it to be meaningful. <laughs> yeah, very at this point. <laughs> I mean, Naveed, do you think there's an appetite in North America for fan over ownership of football teams? Would, would you want to own a little bit of a football team? 
I'm kind of, I mean, to me, it's not new being, being in Germany for 17 years, mm. that's common in Germany. So I would love it and I would love to see it here in North America, but I'm not sure if the whole culture, if it's a right fit and people would actually adjust and get into that, especially in soccer. Uh, yeah, I wonder so how much folk will really understand. Exactly. Uh, or if they're going to think, oh, I get to play like football manager in real life now. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> you're, you're not picking the team here. Right. So it will be interesting well, for yeah. sure. And, but that's, that's, that's one of the issues here is with the different approaches you can take in Germany, ownership, uh, being a member in a club uh, uh, which owns 50 plus one of mm-hmm. a club is a lot different than what I think I'm initially hearing out of this and what I've heard as I've had some of these conversations with people, because yeah, I I think it needs to be obviously much more significant than what WFC two tried to do. I think it also though needs to be more um, than the green Bay Packers uh, connection. Although I think that's deep and meaningful and profound for the people who are part of that. Well, JD Merritt's involved with both. Uh, the thing is with the Packers, and we know, like you're, it's upfront that you and the thing is you can go to the shareholder meetings, like they have an annual shareholder meetings. You can go to that. You can take tours of the stadium and stuff like that. So there are things you can do, mm-hmm. but it's more about it being uh, like a small community amongst uh, a large league. Like you're basically the, it's the smallest community you can of a of a team, a major sports league in North America. That's where the significance is there. I mean, I'm an owner in a number of supporters' trusts, like AFC Wimbledon, Newport County, East Fife. All those supporters' trusts own shares in the club, and you get to go to meetings and decide things, and you've got members on the board. And that's the kind of route that TSS are looking to go down as well. If they raised enough money, I think it's going to be about 49% of the club that you can own. And so it's like not 50 plus one, but 50 minus one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, these guys have built the club up, so they do want to control ownership. And it's for the League One side, so it's not part of the business side and the academy and all that kind of stuff. But it's exciting stuff, and we'll cover a lot more of it in, in the show as more information comes out. Just to kind of finish off the, the show this week, I want to have a quick roundup of what's been a very dramatic weekend in the Canadian Premier League. The top four is now set. We know the four teams that's going into the postseason, and there was a lot of drama along the way. Forge stormed back from trailing at half-time to beat York 2-1 on Saturday. York would have clinched a playoff spot if they'd held on, but instead, Forge guaranteed a home semi-final. Now, York's loss set up the chance for Valor to move back into fourth spot if they could just go to Edmonton and beat the Eddies, who had nothing to play for. They were out of it. But the Eddies were playing like the team that had everything to play for, and they scored a couple of goals early in the first half. And in the 78th minute, Valor were 3-0 down. But then they scored three goals in a nine-minute spell to make it 3 all, And there was a crazy finish from both sides. Eddies hit the bar... Valor had a couple of chances to to go ahead and probably one of them really should have been taken. But in the end, it settled three all and Valor eliminated from post-season contention and just crazy, really felt for for Philip DeSantis after 
getting his team right back in the mix. So that then gave Halifax the chance to, to move into fourth spot if they could beat Ottawa today on Sunday, but they could only come away with a one-all draw, despite leading and launching a late surge after Ottawa's goalscorer Matthew Arnone was bizarrely sent off for getting a second yellow card for kicking the corner flag for celebrating. That draw eliminated Halifax from playoff contention and meant that York United clinched their first ever CPL playoff berth. Valor finished fifth, Halifax finished sixth. Jimmy Brennan is into the final four. It's amazing what you do when you kill off Yorkie. and uh, He was obviously the curse for the, the team. And the action rounded off the big one of the weekend. Pacific headed to Cavalry, desperate to get a home playoff game. They needed a win to put themselves in with a chance to do it. They ended up going down to a 1-0 loss. Joe Mason in the 16th minute, only goal of the game. Very disappointing weekend for the teams that we would have wanted to do. And it looks like it's going to be Cavalry hosting Pacific in the semis unless Forge absolutely crash and burn in the, the closing end of the season, which they could. They've still got to play York, Edmonton and Cavalry. But what did you make of all that, Zach? Disappointing. Yeah, really disappointed for Pacific. Um, they've had another great year. I think everyone was really encouraged at the Island Games last year to see them progress from where they were in their first season, obviously hugely impacted by the coaching change and bringing in Pa. And this year, um, I think they've done really well, despite some obviously significant injuries that have kept key players out. Well, yeah, Bustos missing today through another injury went off at half time of the, the TFC game midweek. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it also, I can't remember how, well, who knows what happened today, but it's also, I, I don't know if we talked about this on the show last time or not, but uh, I still haven't got, I haven't heard the rationale for why McNaughton took that penalty in that game against York, like I, yeah. I had no idea. With Bustos on the field, I have no idea. And, and I did ask one person of significance, and their their response was they were concerned. I think as they, or they they didn't know why the decision was made, and yeah, it was that was baffling. But um, yeah, I mean, and th- that game had so much implications for oh, everything yeah. for Pacific, yeah. for Valor, for Halifax. It was just yeah. and York, obviously, who. It's turned their season around. Yeah. So uh, obviously, it's been, they make great strides. Things are, it's great. They're in the, the final four again, like at the Island Games, and they're going to be in the, in the playoffs. It's tragic for their fans that they're not going to have a home game. Well, they or could. sorry, it's not looking like they're going to have a home game. Pacific beat Cavalry, York beat Forge, Pacific hold the championship game. Right. Like, Keep your so fingers like, crossed. Like I said, it's not looking like they're going to have a home game. I want to go back over. But but uh, I have to get I, to Fairway Market to pick up all my cheap UK stuff that they've got there. Yeah, I don't think it's happening. Um, but I uh, yeah, I hope that they can overcome uh, the odds in the in the playoffs, the seedings, and 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 yeah, playing. It's away. not looking good. Cavalry actually, full credit to Tommy's guys. They looked very good today, and they they could easily have won by a couple of goals. Yeah, um, I think I think I think the regardless, I think we can all agree. That one of these three teams has to be forged, right? <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, it was you're right. It, it was disappointing, but it was an exciting decision week that CPL had. 
Yeah. Um, um, because it, it did. Go, it kind of did go down to the wire. Of course, there's, uh, there's three, three, three games, games from now that mean well, bugger but all. By, <laughs> by essentially the same team that's already clinched top spot, so it doesn't make too much. Oh, well, somewhat top spot. So I mean, te- the, technically, Cavalry could still finish first if if Fours yeah. lose all three of their games. But so was he all right for this game? No, or is he out for sure for that? I I don't know if he'll make the playoffs. Uh, pa keeps his cards very close to his chest with injuries uh-huh. and that usually means he's not going to be good to go that's what we've kind of learned over the course of the season and and then the McNaughton suspension goes into that game yeah. too oh yeah apparently. that was a so big that's one for them today the, the only positive thing is that Pacific doesn't have to travel all the way to the east potentially I, that, yeah. that might be good that could they be can east v east Calgary. west v west yeah and that, that might be good for uh costs and everything like that and television ratings yeah it's not ideal if we get another forge cavalry final either because that would be three out of the four championships cavalry v forge yeah which unfortunately it's on course for yeah yeah Uh, and if it is come on the calves the voyagers (laughs) are doing a big support local soccer on uh november 13th in edmonton those who are in edmonton for the costa rica game to get oh they're going out to the eddies game to go to the Eddies versus um, Forge games. That's, that's what Alan Koch was talking about after after the game. Actually, yeah. he he wants fans that's there for the Canada game to get out to that one. Yeah, well, the Voyager are, invite, are invited, so I'm hoping I'm hoping we can get them all to sing to sing about the tractor song. For, for <laughs> Although I don't also don't want to I don't also don't want to cause issues that you know will make the Mexico game. Make their intentions high in the supporter section for the Mexican game. Talking of such songs, well done to Jackson Farmer. UBC men won the Canada West Gold Medal today, and Jackson Farmer got crucial goals in the quarterfinals and the semi-finals for UBC. But one 0 win over UVic Vikes today made it four straight Canada West titles for UBC men. The women fell short. 87th minute winner for Trinity Western, which will please Zach. It was offside as far as I'm concerned, but uh, both, did, both teams move on did... to the Nationals. Yeah, surprisingly, no VAR. No VAR. I, what? I, I, out at, at T. And, and, and the, th- the thing is, uh, it's, it's funny that you guys all year long were mentioning how the men's team was going like badly this season. Yeah, the they got healthy at so... the right time. I was just going to say, this is huge i wasn't expecting that because it gets them a higher seeding now in the nationals the the women all have the the tougher job but both sides go to the nationals we wish them well but that's pretty much it for the show it's been so busy we haven't even had the chance to talk about canada but we'll address that hopefully with a special midweek extra podcast we've still got time for wavelength though and we're going to round off the show with a song from 2012 and a band from North America, that's quite rare for Wavelength, from Tulsa, Oklahoma. They're an oi band called The Shame. This is their song for football and the pints.
from 2012 from Tulsa, Oklahoma, The Shame. From their album The World Is Ours, for football and the pints. I think the Whitecaps players will have enjoyed quite a few pints after the game today and I'm sure a lot of the fans will have done as well. That is it though for this episode of the AFTN Soccer Show. Just before we go, let everyone know where they can find you online, Naveed. Any final thoughts or anything that you learned this week? Yeah, folks can find me on Twitter at EdmaShinshi. And great day today, I think, for Vancouver soccer. Congratulations again to the Caps, the whole staff, players, everyone in the organization. And also big congrats to the UBC team. Congrats, Mike and everyone. Really happy about that. I'm not sure what SFU is up to these days, but hopefully they pull something off. They've too. been doing well. It looks like they're going to miss the playoffs there, but... Uh, it's tough uh, when GNAC gets you've kind of really got to win the conference to mm-hmm. have a, a chance of going in but yeah yeah Steve um, you can find me on Twitter at WhitecapsBeat uh, you can find me on Twitter at Zachary AM uh, yeah congratulations to uh, the coaches and players of the Vancouver Whitecaps for qualifying for the playoffs um, it's a big week for football lots going on I'm super excited looking forward to talking about it more down the road when when do you head off to Edmonton? Well, actually, I'm out of town for work at the beginning of the week, which is going to be fun and also not fun in other ways. But um, I, we, we fly out on Friday morning, and then we'll fly back on Wednesday morning. Fun times. I'm Michael McCall. You can find me on Twitter at AFTN Canada. Read all our stuff away from the numbers, AFTN.ca. Give us a follow, like, subscribe, turn on notifications, all the stuff that the young kids tell you to do on YouTube youtube.com backslash AFTN Canada. And I've learned three things this week that I just want to, to quickly mention. One, when you're walking downstairs and you wear glasses, maybe take your mask off because after the game today, I fell down some stairs because my glasses had steamed up and I thought I was on the bottom step and I wasn't and I went thud and scraped my knees and my hands and I've possibly done my shoulder. Oh. Yes. So that, that wasn't a, a great ending to what was a, a good day. Second thing I learned this week is we haven't had a chance to do our football cards this show, but I counted what cards. There's three packs left, which is 18 cards, and I'm needing 18 to complete the set. So as Ooh. long as there's no more doubles, it's going down to the wire. Decision day. I, I think I need... I think I have room for seven double or sorry, nine doubles, and we have 18 cards coming. So I'm if, as long as I go 50 50, I think I'm okay. Oh, lucky Ooh. you. And the last thing I learned this week, surprisingly, have, have any of you drank pee? No, I saw pea milk. No. Pea milk. No, no. We, we found it in Save On yesterday, and there was an episode of Family Guy a few months back where Peter Griffin had said, they're in the supermarket, Peter's like, let's go and see what they're making milk out of this week. And that always sticks in my head. So whenever I see any weird milk, I like to try it. I tried chickpea milk. That is not a winner. Never buy that. It's disgusting. But we saw this stuff called Not Milk, which was a great name for it, I thought. So we got it, and it's made from pea protein. And it is surprisingly pleasant. I actually really liked it. That should be their tagline. Pea milk, surprisingly pleasant. So I recommend drink pea, everyone. It's fantastic. Good for you as well. But that is it for this episode. Well done to the Whitecaps. We're keeping this going. We don't have to do our end of season show yet. And it's getting into late November. This is super exciting for me. 
because I'm a little bit behind in my end of season awards that I usually do. So it gives me a bit of chance to do that. But well done, Ivani and the guys. Looking forward to the game in KC. Let's hope it's not one and done. Until next time, thanks for listening. Take care. Stay safe. Mon the caps. And Ali La Rouge. Bye, everyone. Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life. Ten minutes left. Yeah,